This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. Season 4. Episode 26. The Dark Scepter. Episode 1 of the Psionic Adventures of Elgar King. 1. An Unorthodox Quest. I'll always remember that the Gillipites were allies with the Illithid. It's important to the following sequence of events that this is stated up front. Both beings are purely psionic creatures, but the Gillipid are completely blind and operate on an audio signal-based wavelength. I used that knowledge to get onto their ship as it hovered over Ration 6, a holy planet that was one of the home planets to the known rival of the Gillipid. It was a blue and yellow marble with crystalline oceans and wheat fields spread from continent to continent other than a few cities where the peaceful Raytites lived. You really don't want to get involved with the minds of the Gillipid. It's a bunch of religious nonsense. That's why I used my headphones to listen to rock music as I crept through their spaceship. I was literally dancing between the blind guards of the ship as I made my way to the head control panel where Theranos was giving his sermon to his men. For whatever reason, if you listen to music, and actually follow along with the words, the Gillipid can't process the sounds. You're also thinking, but not about the Gillipid. They can't ping you if you don't think about them. The creatures moved to and fro with their squid-like faces and tentacled beards. I checked my Midas, that would be my psionic version of your smartphone, where I can look up all my information on a dime and check my psionic social media and such. I was currently live-streaming my daily summer quest to Magebook and Hextube. I had about three minutes before Theranos destroyed Ration 6, which could not happen. None of my business, but it was my job as a psionic to prevent this genocide from taking place. All I had to do was upload a virus I had carefully created through a corrupt AI construct to wreck their ship's infrastructure. Honestly, the majority of this quest was extremely dull. Getting out and off Theranos' ship would be the hard part, assuming I could get my AI onto the ship's computer. If only Theranos wasn't standing right in front of the main terminal, I could totally get it done. I had to dance my way right next to his elbow to even get close to the terminal. Later, I would learn that Theranos had stopped his speech when he heard the squeaking of my shoes on the cold steel floor of all things, and asked, What is that? He couldn't understand what was happening because I still wasn't thinking about him, so he randomly fired an EMP pulse that disabled my Bluetooth headphones in my ears. Uh-oh, I said, and plugged the AI chip that had been designed for this vessel into the computer behind Theranos. A green circle appeared on the back of my hand, signifying that I had completed my quest. The computer went haywire, flashing red as I planned my escape. Without my headphones, I was definitely thinking about Theranos now. Theranos was able to isolate my brainwaves as I tried to figure out how to get off his ship before it crashed into the planet below. He grabbed onto me psionically, his tentacled face flaring angrily as he held me in his telekinetic grasp. I popped my bubble shield just for safety. Necromancer, what purpose do you serve in this place? He spoke through my mind. Sorry, just a quick summer quest, that's all. I spoke aloud as I grinned while remaining suspended in midair over the walkway. An explosion ruptured from the engine room as red lights began flashing throughout the computer's psionic mainframe. You wouldn't even be able to see the functioning of the computer system without being able to use magic. It's pretty cool. You have damaged my ship irreparably. Theranos glared at me as he closed his claw. You will die now, necromancer, along with me and everyone else upon this vessel. 
My bubble shield began to flicker. I looked back and forth, trying to figure out something to do. If only I could get my feet back on the ground, I might be able to pour it out of here. Quickly checking my Midas, it was no bueno. I had three minutes of grace time before I could port again. I looked past Theranos, beyond the ship that was coming to pieces around us in the lower atmosphere as the planet's wheat-covered surface far below got eerily closer. I could see the outer counter on the ship's psionic dashboard that there was a number counting down. Roughly translated, it read that we had about two and a half minutes until impact. The ship continued giving warning alerts as Gilliped soldiers tried to figure out what to do. Me? I was in trouble even if I could get away from Theranos. Maybe I could find some kind of psionic escape pod, but first I'd have to get loose of Theranos' psychic stranglehold. You came to my ship to kill me and my family. I will enjoy killing a single psionic as my final act. My first thought after he said that was, oh crap, I can't believe I'm live streaming this. Theranos then proceeded to use his mind to smash me against the floor repeatedly within my bubble shield like a child shaking a hamster ball. He raised me all the way up to the cavernous roof of the ship, then dropped me as fast as he could to the floor. He must have done it 20 times within 30 seconds. My bubble shield absorbed most of the impact, but that's when Theranos then pressed me against the floor. My bubble shield crackled as Theranos stacked tons upon tons of psionic weight upon me. His claw-like fingers flexed as my shield cracked from the top to the bottom. At last, it shattered. Blood burst from my nose as my cranium throbbed with psionic pain. I tried to give my Midas the order to shut off the live stream, but Theranos began slamming my vulnerable 15-year-old human body against the floor. It was not my finest moment. Smash, 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 smash. All I could see was red from all the blood running down my face into my eyes. I continued begging my lips to formulate the words to shut off the live stream, but that was my error. I wasn't thinking about what to do to fight back, I was just thinking about how utterly embarrassing this was. You know, I was 15 years old. I can take a beating, but not on live stream. Time was running out. I was going to have to change tactics. Theranos was a purely psionic being, which meant using psionic power wasn't going to work in my favor. Eliminating a regular psionic bubble shield is easy work for a Gilithid because they have access to the full catalog of psionic abilities and counter abilities. But I didn't need to beat Theranos, I just needed to get away and off the ship. Elemental magic would be useless, holy magic might give me a few escape options, Gillipid were made of dark psionic energy so my necromancer skills wouldn't be very effective, and nature magic was basically a joke out in space. That left me with alterations, my home school of magic other than my general knowledge of the necromonic arts. Alterations was how Theranos was holding me in place. It's the art of manipulating the world around you telekinetically with psychic power. It's the field that controls our timeless world and porting ability. Theranos continued his assault, throwing me up and down to let me suffer as much as possible in the short minute and a half we had left. What's the matter, boy? No teleporting away this time? Smash! 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 I threw my hands up telekinetically ripping a steel panel from the floor to break it upon Theranos' lavender bubble shield. I grabbed another panel and broke it upon Theranos again. I grabbed the floor and railing and wrecked it upon his bubble shield. I did this again and again, grabbing piece after piece of the ship debris floating around us as the ship's nose dipped toward Ration 6. Blang, clonk, prack, chush, pushik, plank, plak, crump, crew, pang, crook. I was blitzing useless spaceship material into Theranos so much that he couldn't isolate my being. I finally felt my feet hit the floor, and I ran the other direction. 
I felt the ship hit the planet below. The whole vessel torqued and creaked as a deafening explosion and crash took it floor by floor by floor behind me. I entered a hall corridor and saw that I had about 25 seconds remaining before my port spell would work. I had to use my gravity spell to run along the floor, jumping from wall to ceiling to falling debris, barely making it through tiny angles as the ship came to pieces around me. I kept running, my heart hammering in my chest. I ran a long haul before leaping a massive chasm. I rolled into a continual run down a passage that had been split from the ship's front. Theranos was behind me, coming for his deserved revenge. He was going to try and bring me down with him, but I kept running. The sound of bending and breaking metal was mind-splittingly loud. I ran along a piece of broken inner ship scaffolding, then jumped to a floating platform. I could smell the earth of the planet. I launched myself to a hall corridor that was part of the back end of the ship that was still structurally intact as it tumbled through the sky toward the ground like everything else around me. The passage ahead collapsed. I was able to run along the wall through a narrow nook as the whole corridor came apart. I fell to my knees on the sidewalk in front of the New York City Public Library. I was panting so heavily that I couldn't possibly get enough air with each breath as I fell face first to the cement. It was so bizarre to have so much insanity happening around me before being in a seemingly calm place like New York by comparison. Hey kid, you okay? A man asked as I slowly pushed myself up to my feet. I was dripping blood from my face to the sidewalk below. Yeah, I choked and hobbled down the sidewalk. I spit a mess of blood into a trash can and then ordered a gyro from one of the street vendors. I sat on the curb next to a homeless man. I ate half the food like it was my last meal. I tried to give the rest of it to the homeless guy who shook his head. I'm good, man. He waved and turned the other way. Here, I said, licking my fingers. I hate eating in front of other people. I produced a 20 from my inventory and gave it to him. Thanks. Just so you know, you look like you got hit by a bus, he said. Sure thing, brother. I opened my Midas and saw that my live stream was currently the most viewed video on the Psionic Network. You'd think me barely escaping with my life would be the interesting part, but house remixes of me being smashed into the floor of Theranos' ship repeatedly to epic bass beats were already being posted on Hextube even before my live stream went off air. It was actually pretty sweet. I added a few of the remixes to my favorites list. I got up and walked with the crowd, swapping into clean clothes with a thought. Being a psionic makes life considerably more efficient. I switched the awesome, sleek, steampunk goggles my best friend Harriet had bought for me to my regular black-rimmed frames. Stopping to look in the reflection of a department store window, I pressed down my hair, lifting my hand to have it styled perfectly. I used a quick holy healing spell to clean my face up, but I still spit a little more blood into the trash. I checked my schedule. Joe, my fairy partner friend, was out for the next two weeks for summer solstice. Plus, we needed some space after working closely together for the last six months. She's from a planet in Universe 11. I also got a little tired of my friend Andrew telling me that I was dating a fairy while he and Minnie were dating almost every single day. Meanwhile, Harriet was dating her boyfriend, which left me completely bummed. I'd had a crush on Harriet for a long time. Finding out she would be close to someone else had definitely kept me up at night. If you think that us being teenagers and yearning for relationships is weird, you have to understand that we're probably more in our mid-twenties. We spend days and days studying and researching in our timeless worlds. It's not uncommon for us to spend up to 12 hours a day preparing our magic and homework for school within a plane of our own making where time essentially does not move. It's impossible to stop time in our reality, but you can always make your own temporary reality where time moves so slowly that you can't see it move at all. I noticed that I had a message from my principal. She wanted me to meet her for lunch, even though I had just eaten a gyro. 
Probably should have checked my messages before stuffing my face. Lunch with Miss Poe meant my favorite Korean place in the world on Jeju Island. I ported there to find Miss Poe sitting with the Jeju dog that the owner kept on the property. It panted with a smile on its face as Miss Poe got to her feet to greet me. Thanks for meeting with me, Elgar, she said as the two of us sat at the table outside. Sure, I sighed. All my friends are with their boyfriends or girlfriends for summer. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, Miss Poe smirked. Was that a King Elgar dig? I squinted at her. A little bit, she said. I called you here because... The ship on Raytheon 6, I interrupted. I know, I should have found a better way to prevent it from crashing. No, that's not what I was going to say, although you can help with the cleanup effort in the Q-Wing. It might already be done, not sure. Anyway, she shook her head, I wanted to tell you for once to stop doing quests. What? I asked. The effort is appreciated, but it's summertime. Miss Poe held up her hand. Kick back and take a vacation. You've been doing a major quest every day this summer, and it's the middle of July. I get it, I said, looking at the table. Little bit excessive on my part. Are you depressed that all your friends are busy? I'm depressed that all my friends are dating. We were having fun all the time last summer, but now everybody just wants to suck face, I said. I'm telling you to take a break because you have the interdimensional blitzkrieg in two weeks. It's going to be very taxing and I want you on your A-game. All the psionic schools will be competing. I'm not asking you to stop questing. It's an order. But... I sighed. Fine. Good. Now go spend some time with your parents. Enjoy the day, she beamed. Have a good afternoon, Elgar. She poured it away. This sort of meet-and-run behavior might seem rude to the average mortal, but we psionics are extremely busy. It's considered an act of respect to let someone finish their business quickly and poured on with their life. I got up and stretched wide while yawning. I lowered my arms, cocking my brow. That was odd. I had just given the mental command, soon Kenny Tong, while thinking of my bedroom, which almost always worked, but I didn't port this time. I must have botched the words in my head. I thought about them carefully, then thought of my bedroom, and gave the command. I appeared on the busy city street of Unju Row. I saw Hangul Korean everywhere, which meant I was in Seoul. I clicked my tongue and bit my lip. Not quite. The heck is going on? I thought my soon Kenny Tong spell again, but nothing happened. Are you freaking kidding me? I brought up my Midas. The whole thing started skitzing out. I held up my hand as Korean pedestrians glanced at me as they walked by. They couldn't see my Midas, but I was still fiddling in the air over my palm. All right, I lowered my hand and licked my lips. I tried to figure out what to do. I had a little Korean money in my inventory, but I usually use my Midas to figure out how to pay people in other cultures. Fortunately, going to Korea regularly is normal for a psionic since our magical language is derived from Hangul. A yellow light flashed on the back of my hand where the quest completion circle usually occurred. That or a red circle signifying a psionic action had been blocked for a quest objective, those were the only lights I'd ever noticed. I pulled up my Midas. Within the conical holographic field over my palm, the words, An important personal quest objective is nearby, appeared. Um, what's happening? I mumbled, glaring at the interface. What's an important personal quest? The only clue my Midas gave me was a floating teddy bear with buttons for eyes. It had a denim vest sewn onto its chest and one red ear. It was a rather particular-looking teddy bear. Fortunately, there was a map marker. I lowered my hand, uncertain of what was happening. I followed the marker to a small shop and found the exact teddy bear inside. There were no other customers in the building. It looked like I was the only customer the lady behind the counter would be having that day. I brought the bear to the counter and tried to pay. 
the woman only shook her head and pressed the bear into my hands. Ja san moi, she insisted, I take the bear without paying. I thanked her, then started leaving the store. Before I left, I opened my inventory and put half the stack of one I had in there on a kiosk of stuffed animals. She gasped as I left before she could give it back. It was probably only about $200, but what do I care? Money is practically meaningless to a psionic. Our Zen currency comes with quests completed, so, assuming my Midas wasn't going haywire, I can get as much money as I want in any currency for the psionic Zen exchange rate. I followed my map back around the corner to a coffee place on Anju Row. The coffee shop was called Destiny Coffee. Not ominous at all. I felt like I was in a dream as I slowly walked toward a Korean family of three in the corner of the shop. They had bakery items and coffee, and were slowly eating their food. The mom looked at me as I approached. The father seemed interested that I was holding the teddy bear. I grinned and gave the teddy bear to the little boy in the booth opposite to his parents. His whole face lit up in a way that is indescribable to the page. I smiled and nervously turned around. I walked past two students sitting at the coffee bar, one wearing a green sweater, the other wearing a black t-shirt. I paused at the front of the shop, trying to open my Midas. I didn't get a green light or anything. Nothing came up. What the hell was going on? I waved my hand back and forth, but nothing happened. The girls giggled behind me. I ignored them and scratched my chin. Anya Aseo, hello, I heard one of the girls say to me. I looked up and over, and that's when time really did stop. I audibly swallowed hard as I saw the prettiest face I'd ever seen in my life. She had long, dark brown hair, milk chocolate eyes, and a perfect face. My knees instantly went weak. Hi, I mean, an Anyang Haseo, I said. The girl seemed to be fighting a laugh, but couldn't hold it back. She suddenly burst out laughing. Her friend got up and quickly apologized to me. The laughing girl's face went red as she covered her mouth and held up a hand. What? I grinned, looking between them. The friend looked aghast that she would be so rude. Do you karaoke? The girl in the green sweater asked. Karaoke? I looked at her. No, I, I don't dance or sing or anything except, uh... I remembered dancing and listening to rock music as I made my way between the gillipid, then remembered being smashed repeatedly by Theranos. That had happened not even an hour ago. I don't. I'm Sunmi, the girl in the green sweater said. Kisun. The other girl nodded, then grabbed onto Sunmi's shoulder. She think you really cute. Sunmi covered her mouth and made to hit Kisun. Way. Now Kisun was the one to laugh uncontrollably. I continued looking between them, wondering why on earth I couldn't get my mental teleport command to bail me out of this. It's one thing to talk to a pretty girl if you want to, but I had zero explanation for why I was here. I was already considering how to get to the nearest library so that I could find my way back the long way. Long for psionics, as in like an hour detour, but not as long as taking a 14-hour plane ride back to the US. Gi-sun grabbed Sunmi's arm and whispered in her ear while grabbing her cap. She turned to me. Stay she said, and then Gi-sun left the coffee shop, leaving me and Sunmi alone. Hi again, I beamed like a moron. She grinned and motioned for me to sit down. The family I had given the teddy bear to got up to leave. The mom made her way over to me and said, da, thank you. I nodded, not understanding any of this. I sat down next to Sunmi. She drank her iced coffee through a straw, not looking at me. Quests don't just pop up for us. I normally have to actually go to my quest menu through my Midas, or manually go to the queuing of my school to accept a quest. 
I'd never heard of an important personal quest, or having to do tedious tasks for the Eternium without warning. A quest gets made by a fellow psionic while in a temporal deprivation tank. I make quests too, it's one of my objectives in school to make quests for my fellow psionics to complete. It's just how it works. Whatever was happening now, however, wasn't conventional in any sense of the word. Do you live Korea? She asked, looking over to meet my eyes with hers. It hurt, that look. It hurts just to think about. So many opportunities, so many options, so many futures. No, I'm just visiting, I said. Not really. Sure how long? I sighed. I almost asked how about you, but I could guess the answer to that one. You're cool, I said at last when she glanced over at me with the straw still in her mouth. I looked away, mouthing, you're cool, to myself. She gave me her reserved smile, keeping her lips closed like she didn't want to show her teeth for some reason. An expensive car pulled up outside. She held up both hands. Hand upon? Oh. I checked my inventory, moved a dinosaur egg off my cloak of the hidden sun garb, and grabbed my smartphone. Luckily I had just charged it the night before even though it was off. To her, it appeared as though I withdrew the smartphone from my pocket. It took a second to power up. Soon Mia looked over her shoulder once more. I put in my passcode and gave her my phone. She typed in her Korean cell number and Keiko Talk address in the notes app. She handed the phone back, waved at me, and then I watched the prettiest girl I had ever seen throughout the Eternium leave the coffee bar. Onyonasio, the worker behind the counter asked. I ended up getting a coffee just because, and then I walked out onto the streets of Seoul. I couldn't stop thinking about her as I just walked endlessly for about three blocks. Then I checked my Midas to find that Harriet, Mozart, and Andrew had cornered a treasure goblin 20 minutes ago. Ah, oh, jeez, I moaned. Now everything was working like it was supposed to. I successfully ported to my headquarters at the top of Pierce Tower. I'd offload some of my quest crap here and then go home for the evening find out what my parents were up to, and eat a home-cooked dinner. But first, I climbed up to the top floor of the tower and peered off the windy ledge to the field of pink roses. Ever since I had taken ownership of the tower, the flowers in the center of the land where this place existed had begun to reflect my feelings. The flowers turned violet when I was sad, or angry red when I was pissed off. Today it's like the universe wanted all of this to happen, and I didn't know why. I was a psionic. Falling for a mortal was one of the biggest mistakes our kind could make and yet my mind and heart refused to let her go. 2. Quest Fail 1 I know my principal said to relax and avoid questing, but an elite group of rogue psionic cultists were about to activate an ancient Aglican golem on the dwarf planet of Aglile. I'll make this easy. Picture Egypt, but it's the whole planet, and not fun like some desert planets with cool space dust. It's just sand and it's got all these temples and stuff all over it from the psionic ancients. Who knows? I don't ask questions. I just follow the quest rules. It was a glorious summer morning as I, Mozart, and Harriet ported to the North Temple that had already been activated by us last March, when we had to acquire a Crondul powder from the meteorite inside. Mozart wore a yellow t-shirt and jeans, and had his long, frizzy blonde hair pulled into a ponytail. Harriet's dyed, short blue hair was pulled into a tight ponytail at the back of her head, she wore a pair of black stockings under her jean shorts and tennis shoes, and her Metallica t-shirt had the sleeves torn off. So, was the plan to port jump halfway across the planet to the East Temple? Harriet checked her Midas. It's a dwarf planet, said Mozart. How long can it take? Harriet slapped her face. It's still a planet, dingus. Are we talking the size of Milwaukee or the size of Texas? Mozart asked. Try the size of my foot in your ass, Harriet ported, probably to the only spaceport on the planet in Jeekerton. 
What's her deal? Mozart asked. I flared my eyebrows, still half asleep, then ported to the spaceport. Mozart appeared by my side. Harriet was already at one of the front desks, getting us each a rental glider like they gave us last time. I felt my phone vibrate in my pocket. I checked it to see that I had six Keiko Talk messages from Sunmi. We had been chatting long into the evening the night before, pretty much until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. She was about to go to sleep and I stopped everything to send the spam of texts, telling her to sleep well and that I would see her in her dream. It was pretty weird. I'd never felt anything like I was feeling, but it made every moment of the morning inspiring. Hey, who are you texting? Harriet asked. From some weird part of her tone, I could detect a hint of jealousy. It must have been the charmed smirk on my face, or the red in my cheeks at seeing the photo Sunmi sent me of her lying on her side looking into the phone as she texted me. Nothing, I said. Harriet cocked her brow, looking at the earthen smartphone in my hand that was connected to a psionic apparatus in my inventory that made half of my shelf space look like an IT server closet just so I could connect to our Earth's old-ass internet. Smartphone? What are you talking to your mom or something? Harriet scoffed. He's talking to his girlfriend in Korea. Mozart spilled the beans. I caught a look at her over his shoulder. Very cute, my friend. What? I met Harriet's neutral expression. Nothing, it's just irresponsible, dating immortal, she said and dismissed the whole thing as she turned to retrieve her glider that had arrived out front. Mozart and I followed her out and down the steps as the spaceport workers brought our gliders out as well. Harriet mounted her glider and put on her helmet. Enjoy your fun while you can. You'll probably still look 30 years old by the time she's 100. I wanted to ask, what do you care? But Harriet had already sped off. She usually did things quickly and on her own, but today she was coming off as more obstinate than usual. For whatever reason, learning about Sunmi seemed to have made her even more irritable. Harriet knew I'd had a crush on her since the day we met. I guess I was supposed to just be cool when I found out she had a boyfriend? I asked Mozart. I don't know, man. Girls. Mozart got on his glider and took off. I spent another three minutes texting Sunmi, then tossed my phone back into my inventory. I got on the glider that was like a motorcycle, but instead of wheels, it had two giant fans and a jet propulsion system. Some people called them dusters because they made dust everywhere you went, but they worked for long-distance travel on rural planets. If you think you look cool on a duster, nobody looks cool on a vehicle to a psionic. Usually, if you see a psionic driving a vehicle, it means they're either on a no-port quest, in trouble with the psionic government, or they were ill-prepared for their quest. Ours was the last on that list, but it still didn't explain why Harriet was in such a lousy mood. Thirty minutes of channeling a psionic shield in front of my face to prevent sand and bugs from getting into my teeth, we were finally seeing the East Temple Complex. I thought about going through my Midas to capture the image of the morning sun burning over the temples on the eastern horizon. It's always fun, the idea of sending my mortal, possibly girlfriend, not sure yet, a picture from another planet, but it would get me in serious trouble with my school if I did. It would probably get flagged and turned into a quest to wipe Sunmi's phone history. Then they would likely epopsy her mind as well to make her forget me and everything that had happened between us, so I had to pretend I was just a regular dude on Earth. But as you can see, not even a day in and this mortal psionic dating thing is having hiccups. I couldn't help but wonder how my sudden relationship to this girl was spurred by that bizarre quest with the teddy bear. Was I supposed to meet her in the cafe? And were we supposed to somehow end up together? Was my important personal quest objective... Sunmi? I thought about that as we arrived at the temple and dismounted our dusters. The Eternium is a complicated place. Everything has happened endlessly over and over throughout the Eleven Universes. There are probably hundreds of realities where Sunmi and I end up married. There is probably even a version of the universe where we end up together as mortals, maybe even 15 years from now. 
Not to get too philosophical, but there have been so many iterations of the universe. Look at any person in your life. You've had some romantic connection to that same entity in some form or another billions of times across the span of the Eternium's being. It's been around for a long, long, long time. And so have we. You've also likely tried to kill that entity a billion times as well, so don't, uh, read too deeply into that knowledge. Boy, if I thought Harriet was annoyed before, she was really irritated when every other time she looked over at me I had my smartphone in my hands, texting with that sheepish grin on my face. We entered a large temple with a miles-long gaping threshold. The steps down were covered with skeletons from at least twenty years prior. Hey! Harriet ported to my side and fluidly caught my shoe with the flat of her long sword blade. I was in mid-text. Sunmi was still awake past when she needed to sleep. Pay attention, you almost lit this place up like a Christmas tree, she shoved me, and that's when I noticed the pressure plates all over the stairs. We descended into the shade of the inner cavern. I finished the text, said goodnight for real, and put the phone away for good this time. Remember these guys are psionics, so this won't be a regular walk in the park, Mozart reminded us. Did anyone think to livestream this? I asked. I am, Harriet said, and it's been the lamest livestream I've done all week with you two losers bumbling around. Why are you pissed at us? I asked. We didn't do anything. I'm just mad at guys right now, said Harriet. You're all the same, and you prove it every time I look at you. I cocked my brow, glancing at Mozart. Well, we are teenage boys. You're also psionics, and I guess it makes me a bitch to expect a little professionalism from my colleagues. She hurried forward. Thanks, Elgar, said Mozart. Now we're both on Harriet's shit list. I ported next to Harriet at the bottom of the stairs, intending to talk her down, but landed directly on a pressure plate. About a thousand arrows filled the corridor, sparking and bouncing off our bubble shields. Harriet crossed her arms as the arrows continued shooting into our shields for another fifteen seconds. Sorry, I said. We have a majority, said Mozart to Harriet. We can always boot Elgar from the party. Harriet shook her head. I'd be stuck with only you, and then I'd truly hate my life. I'm thinking about inviting Andrew, since he's the only one coherent enough to execute a proper second-in-command. Maybe if you'd stop treating us like children, we'd be more interested in helping out, I suggested. Harriet stared daggers over her shoulder at me and continued around the corridor. We followed her, only to stop as the whole temple complex began to shake. They already initiated the docking pylon? We were too busy screwing around, and now they're about to activate the golem. I rolled my eyes and jogged to keep up as she entered the interior structure. The ceiling had elongated to hundreds of stories tall. The stairwells were full of Neuland's men. Neuland was the leader of this mysterious cult, or whatever it was. At this rate, it would be nearly impossible to reach the top before the golem was released. Whoever gets to the top first wins! Mozart ported to the first stairwell, drawing his sword and shield for a psionic duel. Took the words right out of my mouth. Harriet ported to the second floor, transforming into an alien gorilla with four muscular arms. She fought three men without breaking a sweat to their utter disbelief. I ported to the third floor and engaged two sort of trained psionics. One of them hit my shield with an elemental fireball. I felt bad because it didn't even trigger a full percent on my bubble shield. I alterations flicked him off the ledge out into the sandy desert beyond and then elbowed his friend in the face. I shot a beam of ice across his feet and stepped out of the way of his swinging fists. Whoa there! I ducked his punch as he was stuck to the floor, then saw Mozart finish with his baddies first. Not today! I used my gravity spell and ran along the external wall about three stories higher than where I'd been. Someone tried to stab me as I climbed onto the platform, but I grabbed their arm and tugged them out as I pulled myself in with two other enemies. I iced one of their feet before their friend fired a spell at me, then alterations blasted me all the way to the other side of the tower. 
The first spell he had hit me with opened my inventory and spewed everything out as I flew over the gap between floors. All of my backup food and stored junk went everywhere along with loads of old random quest items and tedious junk from my inventory realm. My cellular apparatus and all its cables and cords to the psionic router fell and broke into pieces on the stone ground far below. I had just recovered in time to see my dinky mortal phone go cartwheeling down the steps. It was my only connection to Sunmi, not that I couldn't just buy another one. I saw Harriet fall from one of the higher stories in gorilla form. I had just remembered the jar of fairy bomb powder I'd bought from Gannisburg last summer. That jar Joe told me not to buy? Yeah, Harriet landed directly on it. Her bubble shield took most of the explosion that sent her roaring gorilla form flying. Even up high, the wind from the fairy bomb knocked me down. A sudden creaking filled the temple as I grabbed onto a stone pillar for support. I heard Mozart swear upstairs before porting. I was right by a window, so I was able to port jump to a dune nearby. I turned around to see the tower we were just working our way through slowly spin and fall down. Upheaved dust and sand went everywhere. Mozart ported to my side. Harriet eventually ported next to us. What now? I asked. Harriet opened her Midas with a concerned look upon her face. We basically failed that quest. That's kind of strange. She furrowed her brow as she tapped through her interface. Anybody else notice something strange going on with our quests and Midas system? Mozart asked. Yeah, I had to do a really bizarre quest yesterday, I said. Really? Like a full-blown quest from start to finish? He asked. Sort of, but not really. I had an objective to find this teddy bear and give it to this kid. I did, and nothing happened. My Midas called it an important personal quest objective, and wouldn't even pull anything up until probably ten minutes after I finished giving the kid the teddy bear. Weird. Mozart shook his head as Harriet continued trying to understand what had just happened. It looks like instead of making the golem, Noylan took the Aglican artifact instead. It didn't let me complete the quest, but I also don't have another objective. It's kind of busted. Harriet lowered her Midas. Well, no use getting sand in my ass for nothing, said Mozart. I've got a date with a girl from Arcana City tonight. He swapped clothing to a nice dress shirt and black blazer combination. Mozart flashed us a peace sign, then vanished. Any idea where my phone might have gone? I asked. Harriet gave me a lethargic stare. She ported without saying anything, leaving me standing alone on the sand dune. The sandy wind billowed through my hair and arms as I glanced at the blue sky over the fallen temple tower. There'd be no way to find my phone in that mess, and it wasn't even worth trying. I ported to my house. Surprisingly not far from where I'd been, my phone was sticking right up out of the sand. It sat there for a few minutes before footsteps approached. A gloved hand pulled the phone from the desert floor. A person in a red hood and a leather jacket took a few steps with the phone in hand, and then ported. I appeared in the alley behind the phone store, got a new one, and reconnected all my accounts to the thing. I thought about porting to Kangnam and Seoul where Sunmi lived, but it was like midnight for her. That quest didn't take up nearly enough time. I messaged Harriet, Andrew, and Bucky. Nothing. Do I even have friends? I don't blame Harriet since we kind of screwed up her quest, and of course Andrew was with his girlfriend, Minnie. My principal had asked me not to quest, but questing was so much fun. I went home to find the house empty. My mom had taken my sister to run errands and stopped by the park. I ported to the top floor of Piers Tower, dropped into meditation position, and took a few minutes to create and enter my timeless world. Boom. Time was officially standing still for me as my ethereal ghostly body left my meditating form. I had the freedom to do anything I wanted for about eight hours without losing time. 
I immediately regretted coming here because it was going to take even longer for me to see Sunmi again, but I had priorities. I brushed up on some of my weaker spells, mostly holy because they naturally deteriorate faster than any of my other psionic skills. Ever meet anyone who's moved to a new country and learned the native language? It's weird, they might have lived in their home country for 30 years, but even after living and speaking in a new culture, they begin to lose parts of their mother tongue. Magic is the same way. It's a very use-it-or-lose-it type of deal. After wrapping up my spells, I slept. Yeah, you thought I was going to do a bunch of productive stuff, but I'm 15 years old and I make timeless worlds primarily so that I can make up for the shut-eye I'm not getting in the real world. It's not a full sleep, but it keeps me going late into the night. I was looking forward to spending a bunch of time chatting with Sunmi. We had planned to meet up at a coffee place and hang out in the evening. I woke up four hours later and exited my timeless world with a vibrant color of reality. It's only really noticeable when you leave your timeless world, but the colors in that place are drab and almost black and white. According to Stravinsky, my alterations teacher, the timeless world is a residual image of my own reflection of the world. I walk down the streets and see buildings, but it's only based on the image my brain took when I was actually walking down those same streets. If I were to try to go inside one of the buildings without having been inside in the real world, nothing would be in there. Trust me, I've tried. The door opens to a blank void. Your brain is way more advanced than you think, and most images it captures just dissolve in time and memory. I had planned to sleep again upon returning to my parents' house at around 2 in the afternoon before porting to Korea, but I got spammed by everyone. I thought I screwed something up again, but this time it was Harriet's quest that had gotten out of hand. Harriet's quest had turned into a 140-man psionic raid? Mandatory? Holy crap, maybe I shouldn't have bought that jar of exploding fairy powder. 3. Quest Fail 2 Thirty minutes after porting to my school, the University of the Seven Sons, Harriet and I stood before a very pissed-off Miss Poe in her office. The only time I'd been in there previously was when I was with my mother, talking to Principal Antoine de Vorjac. He was dead now, but his daughter was alive in his place. Guess that whole resurrection thing worked out. It only caused me to have to seal the Archdamon Riptoes to the Hellsword in my first year. Miss Poe was still wearing a yellow sundress she had been wearing while she and her husband were on vacation. Harriet and I watched her scroll between our Midas video feeds of the incident in the tower. When it finally became clear that my stupid jar of exploding fairies was to blame, she dismissed our floating holographic Midas feeds with the wave of her hand. Elgar, I told you not to quest, and here you are less than 24 hours later on a group quest with your friends. Now, because you didn't listen to me, we've got a major psionic terrorist on the loose. He's about to take over the Temple of Hades on Pearson 5, a planet in the third universe. So, I can't not my problem my way out of this? I kinda got a date tonight, I said. Harriet exhaled an impatient air. You wanted to quest, Elgar? Eat your heart out. We've got business to attend on Pearson. Miss Poe was about to port us out of her office, but Harriet held up a hand. Elgar wants to skip out so he can date his mortal girlfriend, Harriet said. Miss Poe cocked a brow at me. It's not really any of our business, but I do think that's an irresponsible decision, Elgar. Duly noted, I said, making sure not to look at Harriet. I'd never disliked her as much as I disliked her then for essentially tattling on me. Permission to skip this quest, since there are plenty of other psionic students you can recruit to help take down the Temple of Hades. Denied, said Miss Poe neutrally. The exploding fairy dust is an illegal explosive based on code PSC-194 item 6. Any explosive device or detonation must have a consistent rate of eruption, and exploding fairy dust might break a glass mug in your house or nuke an entire city block. 
Damn it, Joe told me not to buy that fairy dust. I mopped my forehead with my hand. Since you can't seem to follow basic advice or orders, I'm requiring you to help your friend Harriet finish her quest. I sighed, turning to Harriet. Okay, let's wrap this up. I got things to do. Am I required to use Elgar's help? Harriet asked. Yes, because Elgar is a dark psionic. He might be invaluable within the temple, Miss Poe said. Great, Harriet and I said sarcastically at the same time. You two sure you never thought about dating each other? Miss Poe smirked, pointing between us. You're practically a married couple already. I'd rather swear off men altogether, Harriet ported. Ouch, Miss Poe said. Yeah, looking forward to this, I said and checked my Midas. Oh, and Elgar, she rounded on me before I could leave. I'm lifting the no-kill order for the duration of this quest. Be sensible, will you? I nodded and ported to my parents' house. My parents were watching a movie with my baby sister Alyssa as I left my bedroom to grab some food from the fridge. My dad looked over at me, watching what I was doing. He never really got to see or talk to me. The whole psionic thing was overwhelming for him. He and I were never really that close, but me being magic was something he didn't know how to cope with. I thought for many, many years that he didn't really like me. I would later be proven very wrong. Elgar, my mom called and got up. She grabbed something from behind the couch and brought it to me. It was a large package that was soft to the touch. Your outfit from Nigel's arrived. Cool. I was going to toss it into my inventory, but after what happened last time, that seemed like a really bad idea. Fortunately, I only lost items from like three quests, plus my cellular apparatus and fairy dust. I took it upstairs and put it on the shelf. Nigel's was a cosplay clothing company. I paid Nigel Garcia, one of the most famous costume makers in the world, almost $60,000 for a legitimate custom-made suit that would cushion some of the damage I frequently take once my bubble shield went down. It was also bullet-resistant and made me look really cool. I still needed a helmet or face mask of some kind, but I planned to figure that part out later. I didn't have time to open it and try it on. I had to meet Harriet and the rest of the raid on Pearson 5. I texted Sunmi that I might be busy until later, and that it might be difficult for me to meet her right away. She texted back quickly, which meant she was already awake. That hurt. She would want to chat. I had to tell her I was really busy and wouldn't be able to reply for a few hours. I cursed Harriet for disrupting the only enjoyable part of my summer that didn't involve questing or kicking ass. I ported to school. No one alive at my school had ever been to Pearson 5 because there are technically so many habitable planets across the 11 universes that it's impossible for us to have been to them all. Also, some planets in certain universes get more attention than others. Earth is one of those planets. Earth exists in all 11 universes within some form of each universe's expression prior to their flaming out. Every universe resets after it collapses to start over, which is why you have such a vivid memory of that particular experience during Deja Vu. You definitely were there at some point previously, just not in this lifetime or even this expression of the universe. There are a lot of different types of quests. It all depends on the social maturity of the planet's inhabitants. If they have space travel capabilities, they're pretty advanced and it's super easy to get to them. If they don't have long-distance travel, and Pearson 5 did not, well, getting to them could be a hassle. The whole of our 140 student group ported via a mass teleportation spell that Stravinsky made for us. All of us appeared in unison at the spaceport on Giragon 2. It wasn't ideal, but it was a spaceport in Universe 3 that wasn't too far from Pearson 5, only about 89,833 light years away. That's like next door, right? Dude, Andrew said after we boarded the ship to launch. I've never seen Harriet so pissed off at you. Yeah, we're not on one another's good list, I said. You're on a list most people don't come back from. I think she hates you now. 
Andrew said. She can join the 90% of the rest of the psionic population that hates me. But you saved her last summer, said Andrew. Seems like she would cut you a little more slack. I'm frankly done apologizing for myself and my actions. Except the fairy dust. That actually was my fault. Tell me more about your mortal girlfriend, Andrew smirked. She is so beautiful, I whispered. It makes my stomach hurt just thinking about her. I did a double take to see Nancy, one of Harriet's holy friends on my other side, glaring at me. What? I glared back. We'll talk about it later, Andrew said. The ship took off and hovered over a planet about three minutes later. It was a nothing planet, but it had a galaxy gate on it that would put us within proximity to Pearson 5. Going into stasis for 90,000 light years? No thank you. Welcome to the future where you just go where you want to go within the universe. Our ship fired to the galaxy gate and got us to Pearson 15 minutes later. It actually took longer to fly a short distance than to travel almost 90,000 light years. Think about that next time you're sitting in traffic for 45 minutes to travel 8 miles. The ship dusted us off on Pearson 5, an icy planet that remained in perpetual nightfall in its current state of existence. It apparently goes through a flourishing spell for about 20,000 years before it spins back into the outer solar system for another 275,000 years, give or take. But during those 20,000 years, weird folks make weird things as weird people tend to do. Somewhere along the line, a group of Hades-worshipping space people decided to build a massive underground temple complex dedicated to the Lord of the Underworld. I can say, as someone who frequents the supposed Underworld regularly, Hades hasn't been around for quite some time. The temple entrance was heavily guarded by psionic syndicate members in black. I was with Harriet and Andrew behind a snowy bank, checking to see what our enemy's defenses looked like. We noticed that these guys had better garb than the last guys, which meant Neuland had rounded up more men from a bigger company somehow. Yeah, they're better geared, but I don't see why this is a 140-man raid, Harriet said. The three of us could probably mop up the external defenses alone. Something's screwy with the quests in the Midas right now, I said. Maybe we kill this in ten minutes and wrap this up without any trouble. That would be optimal. Harriet grabbed my arm and bit her lip. Listen, I get it, you and I are on the outs right now, but this quest has morphed from a basic yellow quest to a red 140-man raid, so please don't get cocky and don't try to rush this. Let's kill it like professionals. Are we cool? Harriet held out a hand to me. I thought about how she had ratted me and sewn me out to Miss Poe, but to wipe the slate clean with Harriet and at least be on neutral ground sounded a hell of a lot better than putting up with her passive-aggressive, spiteful attitude. We're cool, Harriet. I grabbed her hand and shook. The two of us turned our hands into fists and bumped one another. So what's the plan? Andrew asked. We port to the topside entrance here, Harriet whispered as she scrolled through her holographic Midas video feed. She zoomed in on the structure and motioned at the center platform leading into the temple depths. We go all at once and take out the patrols. We press on them and when they realize they're outnumbered, they give up. It's a temple, so it might have security barriers that they can utilize if we go in guns blazing, I said. Whatever they're doing inside, all they need to do is keep us out for long enough to do it. So? Harriet asked. So, maybe we go in covertly and have the rest of the raid secure the topside on our order after... I paused, holding up a finger. Two of us get in and dual drop a synaptic static field. That would prevent all psionic mind activity, unless they can overpower me, I answered. Actually, not a bad plan, Andrew said. We can get everyone armed with mortal weaponry. Do you think you can get in without being noticed? Harriet asked me. I think so, I said. Harriet considered the defenses again, licking her lips. Elgar and me together, she ordered. Andrew, you're in charge topside. I'll send the order to initiate movement through Midas messaging. Once the synaptic static field is in place, you won't be able to port. You'll have to move in on foot. Right, Andrew nodded. 
Harriet transformed into a mouse and sat on the collar of my jacket. I made a disgusted face as she grabbed my ear to hold on. A tickling shiver went up my spine, but I was able to let my body accept her tiny claw fingers digging into the flesh of my ear. I turned my head toward Harriet. Hey, remember when I asked my first year if it was possible to turn invisible? Yeah, you ever figure that one out? Harriet's voice issued from the mouse, but it came out a whisper into my ear. I found a book on a bunch of old-school psionic spells. The chameleon spell is the one we were looking to use, I said. Son of a bitch, Harriet said as I gave the mental command. Everything on me and touching me immediately blended with the background. Unfortunately, you are not totally invisible. The eye can still see the movement of something as the light mirrors the bend and contortions of your being. Invisible enough, though. I crossed a frozen ravine and mounted the steps to the temple. I hid behind one of two large Cerebus statues guarding the entrance as the patrol guards kept their eyes peeled for targets. It's like they knew it was only a matter of time before we would arrive. Once the three men were on the adjacent side of the statue, I tiptoed to the steps leading deeper into the temple. The shadows were my friend. You couldn't see as much of the light distortion on my body without, well, light. I thought about Sunmi as I crept down the large halls that were lit by flickering torches. Columns marched down the path, making it easier for me to move around between the psionic syndicate soldiers pacing up and down the aisles. It was a lot of security, and for seemingly little purpose. Something doesn't feel right, I whispered to Harriet when no one else was around. I had paused between the patrols as a guy had literally walked right past me while I was pressed flat against the wall. I closed my eyes to fully blend in. I get that feeling too, she said. It feels like we have the quest objective in our Midas, but it feels like they have it too. Like they know what we're doing when we're doing it, I said. Then why haven't we been caught yet? Harriet asked. I don't know, I just feel like I'm playing the predictable move in chess while my opponent has some bizarre play I can't see unfolding. Or maybe these dolts are so useless they don't know how to cast a reveal identity spell, Harriet answered. Stay here with me, I'll be right back, I said. Where are you going? Harriet asked but I had already cast my Chongxin Chao mind control spell upon one of the nearby patrol cards. He stopped in mid-stride, eyes open as I hacked his mind. When a person enters your mind, what do you do? Would you even know if a person did enter your mind? You would if you were present enough, but that in and of itself is the solution. If a person enters your mind illegally, shut them out. That requires presence, and most people don't have it. The assault on the mind begins as a whisper. Let me in, I'm here to stay, you and I have much to say. It's never been so clear to me, you've got so much sensitivity, the epitome, the grand old scheme, we've never been so free to mean what others' hearts should seem, and yet this dream must persist unseen. You get that far into someone's head without them shutting you out? It's butter on toast, my friend. I heard Harriet squeak from my shoulder a few yards away as I turned around and hurried down the hall. Huh, this guy had a doctorate in psychology, who knew? Being a psionic is more fun, even though these guys aren't actually fully powered, fully rounded psionics like we were at USS, they might have 50% of our power at most. Anybody with power is either running a psionic crime syndicate or doing something productive with their lives. They certainly aren't skulking the halls of some temple like a loser on watch duty. I jogged down the steps as Charles Devonport, hurrying past clueless psionic guards whose presence basically led me to where I needed to go. It was like follow the wandering moron. Make an effort to hide or something, guys. A single non-psionic with a bunch of cameras at a desk could do the job of 30 men so far. Hey, Charles, what are you doing here? A man with an Australian accent blocked the way to the steps leading down to the lower corridor. I gotta drop a deuce, I winced, rolling the dice to see if this would work. Have you ever seen a restroom in these kinds of temples? 
Me neither. And here is the 25,000-year-old other throne, the one Hades himself frequently mounted to defecate within. As a tourist, be sure to wash your hands in the basin of tortured souls, just as the Dark Lord himself would do. Sorry, I've got ADD, so I'm always thinking about funny things like that. Plus, this wasn't the actual Temple of Hades that's in Hell. There is one, and at the end of the tour, they tell you it's a replica of the Temple Hades actually built. Still not the original. Jerks. Aye, Charles, the man shook his head. I told you to go earlier before we get into position. But, you know, sometimes nature doesn't care about the agenda. I hopped up and down, then stopped, because that's more of a pee thing, right? Hurry up so you can get back into place, he stepped aside. Noyland's halfway finished extracting the scepter, so you can bet your ass the psionics will be any minute now. I nodded and hurried down the steps. Kind of wanted to see where the bathroom actually was now, but then remembered I wasn't even in my body. Listen to your brain try to figure out all the psionic magic stuff. How long does the effect last? How far can you go? I'm not just some kid with a little telekinesis that can bend spoons. I'm a full psionic. That means I can control this asswipe for the next four hours, and so long as we're on the same planet or moon of that planet, this body goes where I tell it to go. Then we get the really clever people asking where the real Charles' consciousness is, and that is in the plane of limbo, which means he'll probably be super confused when he comes back. At the bottom of the steps, there was a long corridor that fed to a large throne room. The path leading to the throne had collapsed into the depths of the planet, so a stone walk had been constructed along the side wall leading to the platform of the throne of Hades. At the foot of the large horned seat in the center of the room, two psionics were guarding a third man in black who was standing beneath a slowly rotating artifact. It looked like a Rubik's Cube, but with six additional parts added to it. The thing glowed the blue light that would have radiated from the eyes of the Aglican Golem. Got it! The man's eyes widened as the ancient colors of the cube aligned. A panel on the side slid open. A golden scepter with a claw clutching a sky-blue octahedron crystal emerged. The man who was known as Noyland took the scepter. He tossed his long black hair over his shoulders as he turned around. Now, my brothers, we show the psionics the true power of our wrath. Let the Order of Hades be known throughout the universes. Noyland held up the scepter. That's when I got kicked back to my body somehow. I shook into my own skin. It had been dead quiet previously, and now not only was I visible, but Harriet was getting up off the stone floor in human form as guards hurried for us. Dark, tinted bubble shields spawned around all of Noyland's men. I popped my bubble shield as Harriet quickly gave Andrew the order to advance through her Midas. Guys, move in and get here as fast as you can. She lowered her hand to draw her fire-enchanted longsword along with her circular Viking shield. Slamming her foot into the chest of one of the men, she shoved him into three other advancing syndicate members while I took out two more on her right. I used my displacement spell as the two swung their swords through air, only to feel my ice blades through their backsides. I thought Harriet might need my help, but her four-armed gorilla beast came out, punching and brutalizing the three to obscurity. She swiftly transformed back into herself. We should have done things my way. We began to retreat, but suddenly our bubble shields began to crackle. Both Harriet and I had a feature in our Midas that showed us the percentage of our bubble shield, and ours were both fritzing down to 70% for no apparent reason. What's happening? I looked at her. Her face had gone pale. I think... I think we need to get out of here, she moaned, clutching her stomach. My stomach began to hurt as well, but it was the wailing in my ears that was the worst for me. Are you trying to port? I asked. Yeah, she met my eyes. Several more guards hurried at us. I could barely focus upon each person as they advanced. Each figure became shrouded in a creepy black cloud. 
Mixed with the wailing in my ears, the pain in audio became torture. Eyes darting back and forth in panic, I grabbed Harriet's arm and shoved her behind me. Bolda! I shouted with my hands raised, lighting the room with flame. My elemental spells are notoriously, eh, overpowered might be the best way to describe it. Run! I and Harriet used the chaos my massive fireball had unleashed to run past the remaining men for the exit. I was pretty sure I was hallucinating as the very walls of the building seethed in evil air. I felt like one of many rabbits running with a primal panic away from a huge blaze that laid waste to all behind them. We reached the steps and, for God's sake, there's no fast way to climb stairs without the risk of busting your face. Normally, we would psionically slide up or down a guardrail, but we didn't have one on these steps. Catch them! I heard someone call from behind us. I turned and fluidly iced the steps. I helped Harriet up the stairs as she physically couldn't reach the surface on her own. Andrew, Minnie, Bucky, and Mozart were at the top. All of them looked like being there was an extreme hassle. There they are! Andrew pointed with one hand while holding his face with the other. Mozart fired fireball after fireball over our shoulders while we made for the surface. I got behind Harriet and let her just walk the steps as I put all my weight behind her to get her out. Andrew grabbed her hand and the two of us helped her as her head lolled back and forth. Picture someone who had very nearly drowned in a lake. That's what Harriet looked like. Andrew and company had secured the topside portion of the temple, but everyone had hurried to the other side of the lake to await Harriet's orders to leave. As soon as we got Harriet across the river, the color started returning to her face. No one can get near the structure, right? Harriet pressed her hands to her knees as she stood on her own. Nope. Same thing that's happening to you happened to us. Elgar doesn't look like he's doing too badly, Andrew observed. Maybe not on the outside, but it's the voices. I shook my head. Voices? Harriet asked. The wailing and screaming, I said. It was making me as sick as you. I felt sick, but I didn't hear any voices, Harriet said. So what do we do, just let these guys do what they need? Andrew asked. They already got what they came here to get, I said. Everyone turned to look at me. I, I mind-controlled a dude and went down there to see what was going on. I opened my Midas to show them the video feed from my eyes as Charles. Yeah, having a 24-hour feed of your stream of consciousness in 360 real-time to save on command is really useful. That artifact is known as the Dark Scepter, said Minnie. Andrew and I met her at a Mudong school on an island off the coast of South Korea. We needed her help taking down Cthulhu. Andrew couldn't stop looking at her ever since. The headpiece belonged to Shadadad, but King Solomon found it within his tower without entrance, and later crafted the scepter's golden handle. The two items combined became Solomon's most unstable dark creation. Giving the user absolute control over the dark element, it was supposed to be so powerful that Solomon himself destroyed the artifact. That it's here, sighed Mozart, means some psionic nabbed it before Solomon could destroy it, and brought it to the Temple of Hades for safekeeping. This quest is bullshit, Harriet scoffed. As if in response to her complaint, the entire Temple of Hades before our eyes collapsed into the planet of Pearson 5. A red light appeared on the back of each hand in our group, including my own. It meant we had failed our quest. Harriet turned to the raid of psionic students, none of whom could go near the structure when it mattered. Sorry, everyone, Harriet swallowed hard. Quest over. Go home. I'll let you know if there's a follow-up. Everyone began to port. Minnie clapped a hand on Harriet's shoulder, then vanished. Once almost everyone else had left, I approached Harriet. Harriet, I... Not now, Algar. She shook her head. Just not now. She ported and I and Andrew were the only ones left. Jeez, said Andrew. Check you later, Elgar. He ported. See ya, I said to no one as I was the only one left, staring at the rubble of the temple before our eyes. 4. 
wish it all away for you. You know, there are a lot of people who are really comfortable with girls. Like, they can really teddy bear the whole thing up and be awesome. That's not me. So when Sunmi and I went to watch our first movie together, I was legitimately terrified. Hearing nightmarish wailing in the Temple of Hades? Tough. But summoning the courage to move my stupid hand over like an idiot to Sunmi's hand as she grabbed some popcorn? We're getting into some territory that really puts me on edge. The movie was in Korean, and people kept getting hit by cars or getting into car accidents. Sunmi was really into it, and apparently it was a big movie for couples to go see together. Halfway through the film, it turned into a spy movie somehow. It was pretty cool, but all I could think about was Sunmi and what I should do in my current situation. The popcorn was gone, and Sunmi put the bag in the seat next to her. I really wanted to just break the boundary and do it, so I did. I pulled up the theater arm divider and put my arm around her. She moved in and put her hand on my knee. All I wanted to do was be close to her, so this was perfectly good enough with me. I'd never been in that kind of situation before, so my arm fell asleep. Once the movie was over, it was swinging foolishly at my side as we held hands on our way out. She knew all the fun places to go in Seoul, and how to get to them all. I basically toured the city as a mortal during my nights back home, sleeping during the day when Sunmi was asleep. I got to see the Hangul Museum, and even took a quick peek at the psionic side while Sunmi was in the restroom. King Sejong helped invent both the Hangul language, and his psionic subjects also assisted in the creation of the magic equivalent, Majul, at the same time. Fun stuff. The food in Korea is off the charts compared to the fast food we get accustomed to in America. I didn't know what I was eating when I did get to meet with Sunmi, and I didn't care. I just wanted more of it. In the back of my mind, while I grinned and laughed with my amazing girlfriend, I realized that there was an inevitable something that I couldn't seem to get over. It was both the elephant in the room and a major thorn in my side. The times I wasn't with Sunmi, I was lying in my bed thinking about how the Holy Council had repeatedly appealed to have me executed, how they were waiting patiently for my 19th birthday so they could legally get it done, based on the Juxemburg Act of 1817. Gregoff Juxemburg banned the use of necromancy in one fell swoop, and also outlawed the existence of any person practicing or known to have practiced necromancy. From then on, the necromancers died off, leaving only my teacher, Hollendorf, and his first student, Antoine de Vorjac. Hollendorf's final act within the Eternium was to train me to become a necromancer in six months of his extended Timeless World before handing off his Midas Stone and the Hell Sword. His Timeless World collapsed, and Hollendorf's official death was only known and witnessed by me. Upon Dvorak's death, I was the last one remaining. It would be a true victory for the Holy Council to say that with my removal from the psionic community, the process of eradicating necromancy and the dark magics could at last be both a success and complete. I thought about Sunmi and how she would age before my eyes. By the time she was as old as Minnie's grandmother, I would look maybe 35. I could watch her and possibly dozens of other mortal partners dissolve to dust before my eyes. It would be tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and I would be broken for life after life. It was either not fair to Sunmi or it was not fair to me, or both. And then I thought about all that I'd had to do in my short two years as a psionic. I was the pin holding the grenade that was Cthulhu in place. I was the only psionic diplomat to hell, which actually did grant a bit of an edge to the Holy Council. I mean, you might not like your enemy, but wouldn't you at least like to be able to communicate with them in some way or form? Think about all the weight on my shoulders and how I was only a 15-year-old kid. I remembered the screaming of that temple. I didn't think I could do another quest like that, or even know that another one might show up in the future. A thought and an impulsive decision came to me. What if I appealed to the Grand Council of Mages to see if they would allow me to be a pop seed back to my mortal life? What if I just gave up all this madness? There was no guarantee I would end up with Sunmi forever. 
but what if stepping down as a psionic was best for everyone? That made me think about how Dvorak had not recruited me as a psionic for my first official year. I was supposed to start at the university a year prior than when I did, but was never contacted. Even though I clearly had some advanced magical power, Dvorak had believed it would be best or even in my best interest to never learn the magical language, which I wouldn't have. And then when I hit my mid-twenties, my magical power would taper off without being harnessed. Had he known that I might actually choose to give up being the last necromancer? Not for the Holy Council, not because it was hard, and not because others would be happier if I did so, but for the sake of my own heart? Once I left Sunmi's house that evening, I ported to Granberg. You can't technically port into Granberg, but there's a port dais at the foot of the river. I climbed the steps leading to the big-ass monastery tower thing that all the pious religious hustlers think is so awesome. I reached the secretary's office, and Miss Caliba had me fill out a form through my Midas stating my business for a council with the Grand Council of Mages. I did, and then I had to wait about 45 minutes. I didn't realize until I was finally called into the hearing chamber that they'd been assembling the Holy Council as well. Just my wonderful luck, a biased hearing. Not that it mattered. Most of the GCM are holy psionics anyway. I followed a long passage to the center of a platform standing above a deep abyss surrounding the circle of floor. Adjacent to me were the current twelve members of the Grand Council of Mages. I'd rattle off their names and credentials, but members were coming and going so frequently it really didn't matter. Elgar King, Nelson Britton called. Usually it's us having to call you, but today you're calling us. Am I correct in reading that you wish to clear your mind of all psionic activity and live out the rest of your days as a mortal? That is my request, I stated clearly. I believe that it would be in the community's best interest as well as my own to officially end my time in the psionic world prior to turning 19 when the Holy Council will likely appeal to have me eradicated anyway. Britton gave a goofy expression that could only be pulled off with the assistance of his bushy mustache and buggy eyes. Unfortunately, wiping your mind won't be good enough for the council. He looked over at them from the tops of his eyes over his glasses. It's everyone who's practiced necromancy in the past as well. I'm aware of that, but I thought considering my service and my offering to do this of my own accord, perhaps they could have a consolation prize. We could come to an agreement that I can live so long as I never participate in the psionic world again, or I can say forget it, walk out of here, and in three and a half years you people have to figure out some way to wrangle me into place for an execution trial that I'll surely resist. I'm offering an easy path to get what you want. Why wouldn't we just have you killed after you've been a popseed? A man named Hubert Mastery of the Holy Council asked. It's a good question, Elgar, Britton said. Supposing we granted you what you asked, you know as well as everyone else that there are rogue holy psionics who would defy the order. You could make me anonymous. Just make me a nobody, I said. I mean, I have conditions. No, Elgar, Britton said. You cannot forget that you are a psionic. It's not feasible. However, we can put a mortal sphere around you, which will choke your psionic power connection over time and do essentially what you're asking by starving your spirit of psionic energy. It's been done before, but it's more of a punishment. So I'll die at around a hundred like a mortal? I asked. Without being able to execute psionic energy, you will not be able to innervate your blood with the psionic healing power that extends age, said Britton. You'll also be unable to cast any magical spell while within the sphere, as you know from experience. That sounds fair, I said. I think this is foolish, Britton said. So foolish that I don't think it's possible. You don't think I'm serious about this? I asked. I don't doubt your seriousness and commitment to your decisions, but I do think it's impossible for you to go three days without using psionic magic. If you can go 72 hours without using your abilities, Elgar, I will allow your request. 
but only if the Holy Council agrees to the terms. Elgar King's life will be off-limits to the Holy Council under the terms of the agreement that he shall never utter or use a single psionic spell again so long as he lives. Is this something that the Holy Council is capable of agreeing to? There was a bit of back and forth between the members of the Holy Council, but eventually Robert Cobbler, the Speaker of the Council at last, said, Yes, it is a request we would be willing to entertain, so long as we were able to regularly verify that Elgar has remained, by all intents and purposes, a mortal for the duration of his life. Well, Elgar, it's all affirmative from this end, said Britain. I'm going to put a stay on your Midas. If you so much as open your inventory beyond midnight tonight based on your home time, you will be disqualified from your request. You have the rest of the afternoon to get your affairs in order. I recommend you run this by your parents as well as your peers and teachers. I would advise the Holy Council not to get its hopes up because I do challenge Algar to prove this difficult feat is possible. Council adjourned. He slammed his gavel on the counter. I poured it home to essentially clear out my inventory. There's a way to cash out your Zen credits for actual money, but it just goes into a weird bank account that replenishes with cash until you run out. Which, if you quest like me and my friends for two years, you won't run out in one lifetime. I removed everything that wasn't mortal-friendly from my inventory in Piers Tower. As much as Britain doubted I'd be able to go three days without using magic, I was even less certain. We as psionics become accustomed to using magic for everything. Then I pulled up my phone to see Sunmi's face on the lock screen background and my heart sank in my chest. I could do it, right? I could quit it all for the hope that she and I could be together for a single lifetime. We were both only 15 years old, so it was super hard to even say that I should give it all up for a girl I'd only met less than a week prior. But I had to think about all my other reasons. I ported home with the idea that my parents would nix this whole thing right away and encourage me not to make any other major mistakes. My parents were not as opposed to my giving it all up as I thought they would be. They understood that I had a heavy responsibility on my shoulders, more heavy than the average psionic would normally take on. They were also subtly religious mortals who saw this as an opportunity for me to potentially redeem my soul in the eyes of God. It was my own mother in the end who ended up sucker-punching me right in the gut. It's going to have to be your choice, Elgar. On the other hand, if anyone in the Eternium is capable of handling the burden of being the last necromancer in existence, it's you. I hope you'll make the right decision. Ouch. That's a rough ledge to leave me on. Thanks, Mom. If you think I didn't take advantage of my last remaining few hours of being a psionic, you'd be wrong. I roulette my timeless world, teaching myself to speak Korean naturally. At this point, ancient demonic was so much more difficult, learning Hankuga was a breeze. I also made sure that I had a handle on my math and science so that immigrating might be easier. I was so used to porting around everywhere, the idea of moving and living in a new place wasn't scary to me at all. It probably would be when my body fully processed that porting wouldn't be an option. By the end of my Timeless World runs, I had an extremely detailed plan for acquiring a plane ticket and flying to South Korea where I would start the process of getting into a good college there. I could get a visa that would allow me to go to school until I could get a good job. It was a great plan, and would have been a fun way of living even if I wasn't leaving my psionic life behind. So that's what I did. I gathered my mortal things, bid my parents farewell, and then by 11.45 that evening, I was falling asleep on a plane to South Korea. 5. Colossal Choices You wouldn't think so, but cramming about a week of studying into a single evening will put you to sleep for a 14-hour flight to South Korea. I woke up as the aisles were clearing. The moment I stepped off the plane, I had to keep reminding myself to use my smartphone instead of my Midas. Fortunately for me, I left the Midas stone at my parents' house so I wouldn't accidentally pull it up to break the no magic rule every five minutes. 
Navigating without my Midas the mortal way was a pain in my ass. I had dozens of ways of getting around before, but now I was walking the streets following a maps app as I made my way to the coffee place where I was supposed to meet Sunmi. I stopped at a flower stand to buy a single rose. As I was walking away from the stand, a familiar pink light sparked into me. I had expected this, but not quite so soon. Joe, my fairy friend from Gannisburg, had obviously heard about what I was up to and had tracked me down. Jeez, Joe, just calm down, I yelled as I swiped at her as she assaulted me with light. What the hell do you think you're doing? Joe calmed down at last. You're lucky I found you because none of your friends knew what you were up to. How did you figure out what I was up to? I asked. Let's just say that my mother keeps up with all the rulings of the GCM, so when she found out that Elgar King was signing up to disqualify his powers to mortalship, I was rightfully pissed off. Okay, Joe, I get it. You're not happy, but this is something that needs to happen. I'll never be left alone by the Holy Council once I become an adult. You know that, I said as I kept walking toward the coffee place. Elgar, you have eleven universes full of friends who love and cherish you. The idea that we would let you be taken and executed by the Holy Council is laughable. It's not just that. It's something else, I said as Sunmi got out of her parents' car on the street corner in front of the coffee shop way ahead. My knees went weak and my heart ached to be with her again. I had come all this way as a legitimate mortal to be by her side. I kept walking with a smile on my face as Joe landed on my shoulder. I tried to dust her off, but I don't know if I was successful. She's microscopic in size. She just has the power to speak telepathically to me. I hurried ahead to meet Sunmi. It was hard to conceal how much I had actually gone through to be with her this time. Being able to port and see her whenever I wanted had been something I had taken for granted. To successfully arrive on time, the mortal way was a big accomplishment. Unfortunately for her, nothing would actually change. Her face lit up when I approached her, and we both hugged as we entered the coffee place. I got a black coffee and she got a latte. I sat across from her, just looking at her face as she drank her latte. Eventually, we both started laughing. You look so tired, Elgar, Sunmi said. I want to cook something for you. Is it okay? Sure, I said. Sunmi pulled me onto her arm as we walked down the streets of Seoul to a Somme restaurant. When we got inside, she prepared the most amazing food I'd ever experienced, and that was saying a lot. I watched Sunmi place several pieces of pork belly onto the grill and wait for them to cook. She then placed them on a cabbage leaf with a slice of pink sweet radish, som sauce, kimchi, purple rice, and pulled sour green onions. All that was rolled into the cabbage leaf and then popped into my mouth by Sunmi. I sat there, my eyes watering as the most amazing flavors popped in all four corners of my mouth. It's good, right? She asked. I nodded, feeling like the luckiest guy in the world as she made one for herself. I ate a few more. Sunmi went to the restroom and I relaxed at the table of the restaurant. You still there, Joe? I asked. There was no response. Hey, you there? I looked at my shoulder. All I saw was the fabric of my thin jacket. Sunmi came back and sat down. Are you all right? She asked. Yeah, I said, drinking some hot tea. You look far away. She could tell I was still internally wrestling with everything inside of me. I could do this. I thought about five years from now. I thought about seeing her and me at a chapel, seeing her face coming toward me down the aisle as all my family and friends, new friends and old, sat and clapped from the pews. It was worth giving up everything to see her on that day, to give her that day as a gift that wouldn't otherwise be. I'm fine, just having fun being with you, I said. She pursed her lips and ran her finger around the rim of her glass. To see her so clearly, so closely, the curvature of her cheeks, 
the brown in her eyes as they looked back at me, the time she took to make her hair look straight and perfect. It was a vision I would die to play on repeat through my Midas until I couldn't keep my eyes open any longer. But a mortal can't possess a Midas, and they can't save bits and pieces of their life through their eyes like capturing a video, at least not at the time when Sunmi and I were together anyway. When I got back to my hotel room later that evening, I found my Midas stone on the bedside table along with a note. It said, Keep this just in case. All of our magical control essentially happens through our Midas stone. Filtering psionic power through it also lets you keep track of your psionic prowess. Channeling power without it is something that only advanced psionics try to do, so most psionics consider the stone a sort of key to their abilities. I shoved the stone in my suitcase and took a shower. I brushed my teeth, then spent the rest of the evening chatting with Sunmi on Keiko Talk video chat. I watched her slowly fall asleep before my eyes before I said goodnight and closed my phone to lay in my bed. I lay in bed for another 15 minutes and was about to drift to sleep when I heard what sounded like multiple people crowding the hallway around my room door. I got up and was about to go for the Midas stone. I'll defend myself if I gotta while I still can. I couldn't be certain that there wouldn't be an assassination attempt on me by the Holy Council later. The door opened. It just opened. And Andrew and Bucky entered. Whoa, look at this place. Andrew, a boy of about 215 pounds, climbed up onto the bed adjacent to mine and began jumping up and down. Hey, hey, come on. I tried to calm him down as Bucky closed the hotel room door. Knock it off and get down, Andrew, I yelled. He stopped jumping for a second. Make me. I see. I know what you're trying to do here, I pointed at him. Not gonna work. Giving up your psionic abilities for some chick? Andrew dropped and sat on the edge of the bed. Look, man, I get it. Some girls really got it going on. But a guy like you doesn't just show up. You're one in a gazillion. And it would be legitimately irresponsible for us to allow you to go through with this. Hmm, good thing it's not your decision, I said. How much time you got left, Elgar? Bucky asked. I checked the timer on my phone. About 50 hours. Two days. Two solid days, Andrew stroked his chin. You guys are being giant dicks right now by making this harder than it already is, I said. Then maybe you should, uh... Andrew telekinetically pulled my phone from my pocket into his hand. Catch me if you can. He made to run and my heart jumped in my chest. But Bucky slipped the phone out of Andrew's hand with his mind and glided it back to me. Come on, Andrew, said Bucky. If Elgar thought this was the best course of action, then we should respect this decision. I think Elgar isn't thinking with the right head. Andrew tapped the side of his face. What happens when you break up with this girl? You're gonna be like, oh man, I was so stupid for allowing the Holy Council to just slap a mortal sphere on me for life. What do I do now? What makes you think I'll break up with her? I asked. Bucky and Andrew exchanged a look that conveyed the two of them were trying very hard not to laugh. Andrew at last licked his lips and took a few steps toward me. Buddy, he clapped a hand on my shoulder. Most guys don't marry their girlfriends from high school, and the ones that do usually end up regretting it later. I get it, you're more like a 24-year-old or whatever, but she isn't. You're not a normal human being, even if you want to pretend like you are. A yellow light flashed on the backs of both Andrew and Bucky's hands. It was just like the yellow light I saw when I met Sunmi. The heck? Bucky asked. I'm getting a summons to school. What about you? Yeah, looks like Miss Poe's got an assembly planned, said Andrew. Dang, you're lucky it's like one in the afternoon for us back home, Algar. This isn't over, he ported. Sorry, buddy, Bucky said and gave me a fist bump. I'll try to keep him from pestering you too much, but it will be really hard to know that you're not with us anymore. Just saying. I know, I said. I'm not doing this just to piss everyone off. I'm mostly doing it so the Holy Council will just leave me alone forever. Plus, you know, a normal life with Sunmi is very appealing. 
Bucky shrugged. Your choice, Elgar. Everyone knows you'll make the right one. See you around. He ported, leaving me to wonder what kind of weird things were going on in our world for them to get called back like that. Then I realized that there was literally nothing I could do to help. Not my problem. My brain really wanted to make it my problem. I thought about everything a lot while lying there, waiting for sleep to arrive. Why couldn't I just be a psionic and be with Sunmi? So what? Maybe she dies before I do. Then I remembered what Harriet said about us aging slower, that I'd look like I was in my thirties by the time Sunmi's life was over. It wasn't fair to her or me. It was a rare all-or-nothing situation. I either give up Sunmi, or I give up my psionic powers. There was no middle alternative. I honestly couldn't be sure life would be worth living if I knew the two of us could never be together. I had come this far, and the idea of reversing this, watching Sunmi leave my life. I didn't think it was possible. I slowly drifted to sleep, and my remaining time as a psionic reduced by seven hours. I woke up and got dressed as a mortal. I will never fully be capable of forgetting how easy it is to swap clothes on a whim. Today was my day to tour universities, and that's just what I did. My hopeful quickly became Seoul National University, with Kyunghee University being my second. Both were awesome campuses that would promise me a lucrative career by my mid-twenties. It was hard to explain, but I was actually excited to begin my life as a mortal. No more arguing at trials or hearing members of the Holy Council prefacing every single argument with how utterly evil my existence was. No more having to prevent catastrophes from befalling the Eternium. It was everyone else's problem now, and that was fine. Soon me and I met up after she finished with school. Meeting her directly after was the first time I was able to see her in her school uniform. Sorry, psionic world. My goose is cooked on this one. We held hands as we walked to meet her friend at a karaoke bar and grill. We weren't old enough to drink yet, but a bunch of her classmates had challenged one another to a singing competition. I was having a lot of fun watching each of her friends try to sing American songs without screwing up. Seeing Sunmi ace one of their K-pop songs at the microphone made my heart hurt in my chest again. She was so spectacularly fun to be with. I was thinking about that as she sat back down next to me, her face blushing from the attention. My face changed the moment my eyes adjusted to the person leaning over the railing on the second floor of the bar. It was Harriet. She waved, then looked toward the restroom with a serious look on her face. I swallowed hard. Hey, I'll, I'll be right back, I said to Sunmi and excused myself. I went to the men's restroom and entered. There was no one in sight, but as soon as I closed the door, Harriet emerged from behind the wash basin as a gecko before transforming back into herself. Thank the gods I found you, she said, relieved. Joe said you were in South Korea with your girlfriend, and I heard you had planned to give up your abilities. I'm not here to talk you out of your decision, but our boy Noyland just destroyed the planet of Varric 9. It's a good thing all you psionics are on the job. I'm done, Harriet, I said. I'm not coming back. Well, the problem with it all is, none of us can come anywhere near him. We can't get within a hundred miles of him without losing our minds. That's a tough one. A tough one I'm confident you'll figure out, Harriet. You're smarter than me and more resourceful. You got this. I don't, Elgar. Harriet's voice shook. I don't know how to do this. Even the teachers don't know. Stop. I held up a hand. Just stop. I took a long time to formulate words after that. Do you realize how ridiculous it is that I, me, Elgar King, I am the one everyone needs? The world didn't start turning when I was born, and it will continue turning after I'm dead. I'm not a superhero. I'm not uniquely gifted in psionic power. You taught me everything I know. I can't be the one to help make the Eternium right. Not this time. 
Maybe a few times, sure, but not this time. But you're not saying, not this time. You're saying never again, Harriet said. Yeah, because I was never supposed to be a psionic like you and everyone else in the first place. This situation, this split, right here, is why Dvorak chose not to recruit me for USS. He knew, somehow. He could see it all. He could see her. I motioned in the direction of Sunmi, even though Harriet and I were still in the bathroom. So you're really done then, Harriet's green eyes met mine. You're really going to give it all up. I stared at the wall past her for a few seconds before nodding and meeting her eyes once more. Yeah, there's more to life than just teleporting around and keeping the Eternium in check. There's changing a world and helping to make that world a better place, from the ground up. What if I told you there won't be a world if we can't figure this out? Harriet asked. I'll tell you that I'm confident that you can figure it out, I said. Fine, asswipe. Harriet shoved me so hard I hit the wall and then ported. I recovered myself and took a deep breath before going back out to meet with Sunmi. I looked irritated as I sat down next to her. She asked if I was okay and I nodded, taking her hand in mine. Sunmi said goodbye to her friends and the two of us left the karaoke bar alone. We walked down the streets of Seoul, chatting and enjoying one another's company. I walked her all the way to her parents' apartment three miles away. We sat on the steps in her apartment building. It was 10.30 in the evening and she was supposed to be back home right then. I was having such a good time with her, I didn't want our time together to end. I turned my head and she leaned in. I naturally leaned in as well, and our lips met. They were soft, still with a hint of her cherry chapstick from a few hours earlier. She grabbed my jacket front, and our noses nuzzled as I felt her tongue and my tongue connect. I'd go into more detail, but you get the picture. That went on until her parents' front door opened and Sunmi's older sister snickered before closing it. I gotta go. She swallowed hard, her face redder than it had been after she sang earlier. I nodded and kissed her again. It was easier this time. More fun. We parted and she said goodnight and hurried inside. I felt like a vampire that had tasted blood. I wanted more. I was ravenous. My heart hammered in my chest at having experienced my first real kiss. I went back home and we texted until two in the morning. It had been a Friday evening, so the next morning was a Saturday. Soon me and I would be able to spend my final day as a psionic together, and then my life could truly begin. 6. Love is Control I wouldn't actually know what had happened in those three days as a mortal until later, but here's how everything went from Noyland's perspective. Noyland was a 49% psionic. It's a terrible standard that the psionic community uses because psionic power can be harnessed and enhanced. If you have been tested as an individual with a 49% psionic power output, you could theoretically grow to be about 75%. It's not great, but 50% is the cutoff standard for most psionic schools. Noyland's parents were 100% psionics, but psionic power is notoriously non-genetic and fairly unpredictable. It's why even after most of the necromancers were wiped out, poof, suddenly I'm the first one to show up in ages. Neither of my parents were psionics. They thought my first principal, Dvorak, was trying to recruit me for a circus. But Noyland was raised with the idea that he would go to psionic school just like his parents. They taught him everything they could just to prepare him for school. When it came time for him to be recruited, no school would take him. My situation was slightly similar, but in my case, Dvorak was trying to spare me the wrath of the Holy Council. Which is what this whole current giving up of my powers ordeal was about. If I had never met Harriet, Andrew, and Bucky, I'd have basically remained immortal. So, Noyland, having a small connection to the psionic world, gathered followers who were also 49%ers. 
He told them he had a plan to make them all as powerful as they wanted to be, told them they had been cast out by the psionic community even though they were only a single digit less than their peers. He promised revenge, and more power than they could ever hope to obtain. Years later, he learned that the Aglican Golems were powered by an ancient FF-180 cube. Think of a small blue cube with the potential output of the sun. Four of those were the only way to power the Gordian cube that held Solomon's Dark Scepter. On Noyland's fourth cube, we were called. If we'd been able to stop him, we might have prevented Noyland from acquiring the scepter. Once he had the scepter, he was able to grant his followers a nearly limitless amount of shadow energy. All the energy King Solomon would have needed to tame and control the dark hordes he might have unleashed if he had not been such a capable psionic. Noyland vied for revenge, but he had wanted to see just how powerful he had become. Varric 9 would have been the planet where he would have gone to school. Using all the energy he could muster, Noyland was able to pull a giant asteroid out of orbit and have it crash upon the planet. It was during this storm of energy creation that Harriet and every single psionic from my school tried and failed to stop Noyland. The shadow energy he had unleashed consumed all surviving life upon the planet, leaving the world a barren husk that could no more harbor life than the surface of the planet Venus. With his test run complete, it was time to go for the source. Gramberg, on Earth, would fall, and every other city connected to it would be next. I was still asleep when Noyland teleported to Molokai Island in Hawaii. He and a number of his followers had visited Earth just to prepare for this moment. Noyland's logic was that if he could strike enough volcanoes, it might set off all the other volcanoes throughout the planet along with it once the asteroid hit. As for asteroids, Noyland had his eye on 22 Squire, an 18-mile-wide asteroid that would more than wreck Earth beyond recognition. It would be circling over the Central Pacific at around 2 that afternoon. I got up and got dressed. I was to meet Sunmi for breakfast so that we could spend the day together. She told me she had to go to church on Sunday, then dance practice after school on Monday afternoon along with homework, so we probably wouldn't be able to see one another until late Tuesday at the earliest. I told her I didn't mind, and that I'd be busy preparing for Korean college anyway. At our current state in the year, I'd probably be looking at a winter semester at the earliest. It was fine. I wasn't nearly ready to overcome the massive language barrier that was already looming around me. You know how the days of big events you remember the morning of just stand out in some way? That morning would be one I'd remember as being noticeably odd. On my way out of the hotel room, I stopped and went back to my suitcase to grab the Midas stone I'd tossed inside. I looked at it for a few seconds, then put it in my pocket. I couldn't tell you why I took it. It was just a feeling that I could go another three quarters of a day without using magic while still having the ability. I guess that's what addicts tell themselves too. Sunmi wasn't in a very good mood because she'd been arguing with one of her friends, so she wasn't very talkative. I just tried to have a good morning. Something heavy filled the air, and it made me quiet as well. Are you alright? Sunmi asked. We sat at a Korean breakfast place. I'll be honest, kimchi for breakfast sounded unappetizing at first, but now I'll take it any time of the day. Yeah, just a lot on my mind, I said. Sunmi really only knew that I was in town temporarily while looking for colleges. My story was that I had graduated early, which I had the certificates to prove that I had, and was frankly way beyond high school education. She thought it was brave for me to come here all alone without my parents, not fully understanding the language and culture, and explained that it was not a normal thing for a 15-year-old to do. It was another realization that even in my short time as a psionic, I had advanced considerably in maturity, capability, and independence. I recalled all the time I spent in my timeless world, 
If only I could bring Sunmi with me there. Sunmi told me to hurry up and finish my food because she bought us train tickets to Busan where her grandparents lived. Her older sister also went to school there, and she wanted to introduce me. We traveled by subway to Sunso Station and got on a train headed southeast. I had hoped to see more of the South Korean countryside, but it was all underground. Yay for a six-hour train ride. The two of us were able to lighten up and begin enjoying one another's company as we held hands in the seat next to one another. The two of us eventually fell asleep with our heads together for the duration of the trip. It was 2.30 by the time we arrived. Sunmi had already planned for us to have dinner with her older sister and her boyfriend, but first she wanted to have a coffee at her favorite place in town. I think Korean people like coffee as much as the people of the UK love beer. It seemed to be a before or after treat around lunch or dinner. We got a coffee and sat on the outdoor balcony under a beach umbrella. I remembered that moment well because the details of something lost are always clearer. Sunmi wore a black jacket over her t-shirt and jeans and had her long hair down. She noticed me watching her, unable to stop looking at her. She smiled, then her face fell. Her eyes noticed something over my shoulder. It was a strange sight when I looked over, almost like a storm, but not quite. A black hue shrouded the eastern horizon beyond the mountains of Japan in the distance. I cocked my head at it, feeling my fingers shaking. Something was happening. I turned back to Sunmi and closed my eyes. I held her hands and she seemed torn between looking at the strange situation on the horizon and me. It was at that moment as I looked down at our hands together on the tabletop that I realized I'd never had a choice in all of this. It seemed a cruel punishment to exist in this world and universe, and yet the two of us could not be. I narrowed my brows, angry at the gods, angry at my quests, and the controller of my path. Why? Why? I ask. Would you allow a world and lifetime of peace, happiness, and love so close within reach? And then allow me to watch it swing back into the abyss, helpless to change course. Who would be so cruel as to find entertainment in such a prospect? Elgar, are you okay? Sunmi asked me. I looked up at her, seeing her face, memorizing every part of it because it would be one of the last times I would ever see her. Just don't want to lose this moment, I said and held on as long as I could. A sudden wind gushed through the umbrellas of the cafe balcony. Several people hurried inside. Someone yelled something in Korean and everyone began pointing east. My jaw dropped as I looked over to see a ginormous asteroid soaring toward the planet's atmosphere. All right, now I wasn't just disappointed. I was pissed off. Hey, Joe, I said. A pink light sparked into existence from my shoulder. Sunmi gasped at the sight of it. How long you been sitting there? Hmm, all day, Joe answered. I got up from my seat. You ready to fly? Born ready, Joe answered. I turned on my Midas and instantly swapped into the uniform I'd had Nigel Garcia design. It was a sleek black zipper down top with a matching pair of black pants and fitting boots. It was all formed to my figure perfectly as my designer goggles replaced my glasses. They looked like sunglasses when they polarized in the sunlight. I looked over at Sunmi's stunned face. I'll be right back. I walked ten yards away from her, crouched, and then... Boom! I launched into flight. Yeah, we psionics can manipulate the air around our body and telekinetically fly. Once you get good at it, you can just keep accelerating yourself until you break the sound barrier, which I did. I mean, all that air? It's easier just to teleport than fly to a place. People often ask why we don't fly more often, and my answer is always, why don't you swim more often? It's kind of the same thing. 
I kept a steady speed going into the stratosphere. I popped my bubble shield and opened a chat room to invite Harriet, Andrew, Mozart, and Bucky. I hope you dickwads have a plan. I'm officially out of retirement thanks to you. Holy crap, you came back, Bucky said through the chat room's audio interface. Welcome back, Elgar, said Harriet. I knew Homeslice wouldn't be able to stay away from his powers, Andrew said. Get your asses up here. We've got debris to clean up after I demolish this asteroid, I said. What's your plan after that? asked Harriet. Noyland is just going to keep grabbing asteroids. None of us can get close to him. She sent me a video of Noyland hovering in midair as he gathered dark energy with the dark scepter raised. Swirling around him was a storm of black smoke, which explained the dark hue on the horizon I was seeing. His tornado of power became so large that he was able to literally grab objects out of their trajectory in space and pull them toward Earth. You've gotta be kidding me! I shook my head. Hold on. Furious and full of rage that this had happened, I closed my hands into fists to accelerate myself even faster toward the asteroid that was plunging toward our planet. You hear 18 miles and you think, that's not that far. But think of it in size. 18 miles in size? Holy crap, it's the size of a large metropolitan area. But who cares? I was about to bust this thing to bits. I just kept accelerating as the landmass of the asteroid came at me to consume my entire field of vision. I thought about Sunmi, thought about my parents, thought about everyone on Earth who only wanted to argue, sneer, and despise their fellow man across the globe. But it's still my home, they're still my people, and they're still my family. I drove toward the asteroid's surface. Just upon impact, I shouted a spell that I had learned from Pure of the Monsoon. He was always coming up with creative ways of destroying things, and I'd never had an object this big to destroy until now. The explosion was so big and so vast that my vision filled with light. My bubble shield crackled down to 5%, sending me sprawling through space amidst the debris. I can't imagine what it must have looked like from the ground, but it was pretty cool from my perspective. I recovered myself and went after the big chunks that were still charging toward the planet below. I saw Harriet, Andrew, and Bucky appear in their uniforms as well. We'd all had the same guy design matching outfits so we could look like true losers. They began breaking the big chunks of asteroid around me. The four of us were able to punch rock into dust fragments, most of which would burn up on entry. What's the plan now, Elgar? Harriet asked again once we had no further targets. She wore a pink uniform that looked similar to mine. We can't get near Noyland in his current state, but what if we shoot him out of the sky? I asked. You mean like with a gun or something? Andrew asked. Sort of, except I'll be the bullet and you guys will be the gun, I said. My friends exchanged a confused look, shrugging. Timeless world, now, Harriet ordered. The four of us rocketed back into the atmosphere toward the planet below. 7. Busted Ass Dark Scepter it took a bit of math, coordination, and figuring across multiple planets and locations from different universes in the Eternium, but we finally got it. Bucky had asked why we couldn't just fly in Perpetuum around the planet, but spatial resistance only allows a maximum psionic speed through space of about 4,000 miles per hour. That was fast, but not nearly fast enough. I hoped to go considerably faster if everything went according to plan. The four of us exited Harriet's timeless world and hurried into action. Bucky ported to gather some of our psionic classmates to help. Harriet Andrew and I ported to Galarans in Universe 4. He was a spaceship dealer who kept an entire planet worth of junk that he had acquired. It was so big, Galaran actually had a place for psionics to port in so they wouldn't wind up in the middle of a pile of trash because things were moving constantly. 
I think I've got something disposable like what you're looking for, he said when he explained what kind of ship we were looking for and for what purpose. Galaran had to speak through a translator because he's hyper-intelligent, but he's also half-slime, half-sentient insect. Explaining Galaran is a whole other story for a later date. We'll get there. He had one of his drones guide us to the ship location, which turned out to be a massive pile of junk. I can get it running in less than ten minutes. Really? Harriet asked. Running or up into space? Because this thing looks like it might run a refrigerator. You said all you needed was a ship that could fly through the UB interplanetary tour loop. Galaran spoke through the drone. This thing's like a paddle boat compared to a real spaceship. Andrew grumbled. As long as it can accelerate and also has a functional escape pod, we're all good, I said. Harriet sighed, looking at Galaran's drone. We'll take it. Get her into space ASAP. Your money makes your wish my command, said the drone. It was hard to believe that less than an hour ago I was having coffee with Sunmi in Busan. Now I was currently putting on a spacesuit as I was being launched into space with Harriet and Andrew in a completely different universe. Being launched into space on a spaceship I helped pay to acquire. I did a double take at Harriet to see her looking at me. She gave me a smirk before looking away. You guys ready? She asked through the suit's comm system. Joe, you got the coordinates? I asked. I've double-checked Harriet's math because you and Andrew would have gotten us stuck in an asteroid field, said Joe. I've plugged everything into the system, so all you guys need to do is let the autopilot do the work and cue your dimensional doors in sequence. Man, I gotta get me one of those fairies, Andrew said. Explain this dimensional door thingy again, Bucky said through our Midas chat. A dimensional door, I explained, is a shadow spell Hollendorf taught me in my first year. I never really thought anything of it until I was scanning the spells tab of my Midas while trying to figure this thing out. It's not teleporting, but rather using the Shadow Realm as a medium to host an extraplanar psionic gateway between locations. That's why you never stop when passing through a dimensional door. Fortunately for me, stopping won't be possible. Damn, shadow magic is tits, Bucky said. Also, since Noyland is creating a synaptic field that only allows shadow energy, because the dimensional door is shadow magic, we shouldn't have any trouble casting it around him. We are approaching 100,000 miles per hour, said Harriet. She sat in the captain's chair as I and Andrew sat in the seats by her side. The ship wasn't a perfect vessel, but it was still soundless as it traveled through blank space toward nothing in particular. I really wanted this to be cool, I said. You know, like with loud engine sounds and stuff. I mean, that's what I thought this would sound like when I came up with the plan. Andrew made a stupid face at me and I was glad Harriet wasn't in a position to see me. I looked down at the boots of my spacesuit. I missed Sunmi, but I was also doing something ridiculously epic to save her, even if she had no idea I was doing it. Hey guys, Mozart chimed in. Sorry I'm late. I got eyes on the prize and he's still in position. Get here when you can, Harriet. Hey Elgar, said Harriet. You're about to be up. You ready? Yeah, I got up from my seat and made my way to the escape pod hatch. Andrew followed me. Warp corridor is clear for passage for the next five minutes, Bucky said. Once we separate and hit the UB interplanetary tour loop, you'll be on your own, Elgar. Andrew said. I'll be fine, I said. You won't be able to really do anything because the escape pod has almost nothing in the way of navigational functionality, but that's part of it, right? That's part of it. I clapped a hand on his shoulder. Okay, got it, said Andrew. I just gotta catch you, just like a catcher catching a baseball. Right, I said. Harriet looked over the back of the captain's seat. Guys, this boat is going as fast as it's gonna go. Just get your asses moving so I can aim the gun. Right, I grabbed the escape pod entry hatch and entered. Andrew followed and pulled the door closed behind him. No going back, I said and pulled the release lever. The two of us held on as the escape pod launched from the ship we had just purchased. 
Sitting in one of two of the seats on the escape pod, I was able to cast the first dimensional door spell ahead of us. I coordinated it to exit at the mouth of the warp corridor feeding the UB interplanetary tour loop where Bucky was making sure my path was clear. The UB interplanetary tour loop was a massive series of gate structures that allowed your vessel to tour the many planets of the UB solar system in five minutes. Once you hit the warp corridor, your ship would travel the same precise route every time between six different planets, finally traveling at a maximum speed of 225,000 miles per second as you soar over the beautiful Emerald Gem, the megaplanet of Sisasaur that floated over the outskirts of the solar system. Most people thought it to be boring, but it was a pretty neat thing to do when you first start traveling the universe. The escape pod passed through the dimensional door and hit the warp corridor instantly, firing us faster out toward the first of the six planets. It was a pure water planet that looked green and probably smelled like a swamp. Cool, whatever, we got bigger things to do. We looped around it, perfectly soaring to the next planet that was a gas giant. I checked my Midas time. It had literally been 35 minutes since I destroyed the asteroid. Felt like a lot longer with the timeless world trip. The gas giant was so big it pulled us faster around a steep curve, slinging us past a fiery terrestrial planet as we made for a bigger blue gas giant ahead. Hey Mozart, I said. How's our target looking? Mighty pissed off. He's going for another asteroid as we speak. I don't know what's up there, but he's looking desperate. I got the ship back down, said Harriet, heading to final warp position. Andrew and I swirled around the second gas giant and headed for the truly monstrous terrestrial planet of Sisasaur ahead. Any normal ship would buzz across the surface of the planet, passing over the picturesque valley of flowers that grew upon the planet's surface. I and my escape pod rocketed through Sisasaur's atmosphere at a spectacular 190 miles per second. I'm out. See you soon. Andrew bid me farewell and used a port card to get to his location on Sisasaur. The flowers were emerald green as they flew into view ahead. The gravity of the planet dragged on my speed considerably, slowing me down to a meager 300,000 miles per hour as we reached the end of the loop. Most ships took another warp corridor back, but we wouldn't need to. Ready, everyone? I asked. I'm here, Andrew said, waiting for your cue, Harriet. On my way. Harriet ported to the island of Molokai, literally right into the fire beneath Neuland. He saw her appear. Harriet flipped him the bird, then prepared to cast her dimensional door spell, which actually would be possible to cast during the shadow storm due to it being a shadow-based spell. The pain of being within Neuland's shadow synaptic field visibly paled her within seconds. She planned to position the door on level with Neuland's floating figure. Elgar, my dimensional door is in the air at your trajectory point, Andrew said. Ten seconds out, I said as the field of emerald flowers rushed beneath my escape pod. My speed had dropped to about a hundred thousand miles per hour. I popped my bubble shield and got up, leaning on the headrests of the escape pod's chairs. Come on, come on, I can't hold on here much longer, Harriet said through gritted teeth. Cast it, Harriet, I said. Everything that happened next happened within about two seconds. Harriet swallowed and cast her dimensional door directly in front of Noyland, whose face suddenly looked like that of a person who was about to be struck by a train. Its exit was directly in line with Andrew's exit. Harriet used a port card and vanished. I thought about Sunmi and my grip tightened as I braced myself. My escape pod passed through Andrew and Harriet's doors in succession and... Not sure what happened to the escape pod. I think it disintegrated between our bubble shields. But I and Noyland finally got to meet up close and personal as we flew around the planet twice in one another's arms before crash landing for about a hundred miles through the Mojave Desert. Don't ask me how the guy still had fight in him, but both of us got up, our bubble shields shattered and gone, blood running down both our faces. 
He staggered, his long black hair in disarray as he clutched the dark scepter. Who the hell are you? Noylan spat. Did you? Did you just ask who I am? I laughed, teetering to a stance. I didn't let Noyland answer as I slowly approached him. I so rarely get asked that question these days. I just want to enjoy the unfamiliarity of finding a person who actually has no idea who I am before I enlighten you. I hit him with a telekinetic crush spell, but he reflexively conjured a shadow defense with the dark scepter in his grasp. You're that necromancer everyone's always talking about, Noyland said, pushing away my will with his shadow energy. I wanted to see if you'd be interested in changing sides, since the Holy Council will try to slit your throat if you so much as take a nap after you come of age. I got a side. It's mine. I hit him with a series of alteration strikes, but then Noyland raised a scepter and threw his arms back. I felt the wailing scream slice through my brain as both Noyland and I rose off the ground. He hit me with a full blast wave that had the full power of the scepter behind it. Almost as though gravity was no longer applicable, I was sent rocketing over the desert until trees began passing below. I could see buildings on the horizon. By the time I finally regained psionic control over my inertia, Noylan crashed into my side. The wind was knocked from my stomach before Noylan slammed both fists upon my back, sending me straight down to a giant oak tree upon a hill that overlooked Pasadena in the Los Angeles Valley. It hurt. A lot. He kept a telekinetic hold of me as he lowered to the ground. All that power between your ears and you can't even mount a halfway decent defense against the Dark Scepter. Noyland lifted me from the ground telekinetically. I raised both hands to make Noyland a target. Rocks from all over the area began flinging themselves at him, pummeling his backside until he was able to throw his offhand up to create a smoky barrier around himself while still clutching me telekinetically. That freaking scepter is OP as hell. Noyland angrily stamped his foot and punched his fist that was closed around the scepter into his other palm. I felt like a rag doll as I was launched at hundreds of miles per hour away from him. Man, the poor people in the Japanese consulate building that towered over downtown Los Angeles. I flew end over end so fast and hard that I slammed through the window and plowed through multiple office cubicles before tumbling to a halt within the aisle next to the windows on the opposite side of the building. Fury filled me as I recovered myself. Far in the distance, I could see Noyland's massive shadow spell gathering energy as his speck of a person rose into the air. I took a running start between the desks my flailing form had demolished before throwing myself into flight toward the hole in the window. I cast the dimensional door ahead of me and opened it directly in front of Noyland, crashing into him yet again as pain sliced into my mind. Why don't you give up? He yelled and whirled me around to send me flying back through the door I'd created. This time he followed me through. The two of us crashed through the office floor yet again as the civilians within legitimately began fleeing for their lives. My back hit the other window and the two of us shattered through. I was able to fling Noyland off me and out over the city. Freaking aerial combat made it almost impossible for me to actually do anything to the guy. Even if I could land a hit, he was still protected by the damn scepter. Meanwhile, I looked like I'd been slammed through an office building a few times, and I had. I fired a massive fireball at Noyland that was merely swallowed up by the power of the scepter that was made to battle demons in hell, so yeah. Looks like someone's running out of ideas, Noyland called. Maybe I should. Grab another asteroid, he raised his arms. The black smoke billowed around him from the stone within the scepter. As he did this, it felt like a really strong person was crushing my cranium between their hands. I squeezed my palms into fists so tightly that I felt my fingernails cut into my flesh. Relief. How peculiar. In the pain, there was freedom. I focused on the pain and launched myself at Noyland. I needed to get him away from this city right away. 
He raised a hand, but was unable to protect himself from me this time. I was unaffected by the scepter's power, but Noylan was as resourceful as me in his own way. He grabbed my suit front and spun the two of us into a wild merry-go-round that he released with the power of the scepter, which sent me hurling through part of the Wells Fargo building across the street from the Japanese consulate building I had wrecked. I broke through one window and hit the wall face first on the opposite side. I tried to get up but slipped and fell down. So, this is the hero that stopped Cthulhu in his tracks. Noyland hovered over my entry hole into the building and landed upon the floor in front of me. I scrambled back, my whole face bloodied and beaten from being tenderized repeatedly. This is the boy who braved the fires of hell to seal Riptos the world ender. This is the boy who will die for his world and become an example to the psionic race, right here in front of all your people. Noyland held up a hand and telekinetically suspended my figure before him. You never had a chance, Elgar. I am a god, and you cannot kill a god. Hey, asshole. I choked. You're not a god, because I'm not a god, and you're nothing to me. I squeezed my fingers into painfully tight fists and slammed an alteration's headbutt into Noyland's face that he could not deflect. It was the pain. He couldn't stop me if I suffered in the process of striking him. It was when I dug my fingernails into my palms to the point of agony that I discovered the only weakness that the Dark Scepter possessed. Selflessness. I drew a knife from my inventory and sliced it across both my palms as Noyland recovered. I squeezed my nails into the cuts in both hands and rocketed into him. Smash! Crack! Crunch! My fists connected violently with Noyland as I put all my weight and strength behind every attack. My knuckles burst, my shoulder dislocated, and my eyebrow swelled and popped with blood as I hit Noyland repeatedly with every kind of alteration strike I could muster. At last, I grabbed hold of Noyland's arms, then punched him with my forehead so hard that there was a visible crater beneath him in the asphalt within the street. I used my mind to lower myself back to the ground before him. All right, boy, you've pissed me off now, Noyland snarled, holding the blood that was running from his nose in his hand. Noyland clutched the scepter with both hands as his face twinged. He was trying to wrangle control of me, but I was actually far more powerful than the stupid scepter. I just had to focus on the pain. I squeezed the slices in my palms with my nails until beads of blood began to drip from the wounds. Noyland telekinetically grabbed two cars that were parked on the side of the road and tried to slam them upon me, but I held up my arms to hold them back with my own telekinetic control. I smashed Noyland with a psychokinetic kick through the face that launched him down the street as the cars fell to the ground helplessly. Die, necromancer! Noyland sent a rage of shadow energy at me that I held up my bloodied fists to negate. My shadow energy met with his as the two of us negated one another so long as I kept my mind on the pain. You keep thinking you're more evil than me. I saw the police car speeding down the road toward us. I fired my dimensional door between us with the exit in front of the police car. I watched an LAPD cruiser literally drive at 50 miles per hour through the dimensional door and smash into Noyland before running him over. The dark scepter went cartwheeling over the asphalt as the cruiser slammed to a halt, but I grabbed it with a telekinetic pull, tossed it into my inventory, and crouched over Noyland with my hand on his twisted wrist. I group-ported Noyland and I to Arcana City, where we were almost immediately surrounded by holy psionics. Hey, what do you know? They arrested me too. What a surprise. 8. We can't break up if I make you forget me first. I watched as Nelson Britton of the GCM viewed the playback of my battle with Noyland at my trial. When it got to the part where Harriet, Andrew, and Bucky started creating dimensional doors, he threw his gavel in frustration and killed the playback. 
Elgar King. He surveyed the dark scepter that was currently placed within a Xenoglass display case on the table with several other artifacts Noyland's syndicate had been after. Britton shook his head. How many times are we going to do this? How many times are we going to have to make an exception for you and your devious plans? I thought it was pretty creative. I mumbled. Quiet! Britton commanded. He swallowed, cleared his throat, and continued in a pleasant manner. An exception here, an exception there, and soon we're teaching all the students how to cast shadow spells along with their holy, alterations, elemental, and nature spells. Do you think, from our perspective, this is sustainable behavior we can tolerate? Probably not. I said. And you made an absolute spectacle of yourself in front of a bunch of Korean mortals. Well, Algar, I have the perfect punishment for you, and it's going to hurt. I glanced over at my mom in the seats behind me who shrugged. Because this mortal girl has feelings for you that are too deep for any psionic to erase, you must be the one to apopsy her memory. You can either commit the grave sin of continuing a relationship with this mortal and truly give up your powers as you should have done before, or you must erase her memory. Those are your options, Elgar King. Choose wisely. You have one day to decide. He clacked his gavel on the counter once more, and everyone in the hall began to port away. A bunch of holy council members had red faces and were grinning broadly as they shook hands. They loved bad PR for me. Anything that made the shadow arts look bad, or even the idea that banned shadow magic might somehow end up taught in schools, it was a good day for them. Every evil thing that happens reinforces their position that the abhorrent dark magics should be abolished as swiftly as possible. If they had their way, if your Midas tracked that you so much as studied a shadow spell, you'd be penalized or called for punishment. The truth is that all magic is important, even the shadow magic. And as holy as all the Holy Council members think they are, they have a little darkness in them as well. We all do, and it's denying reality to believe that you could ever be so pure. Psionics are still human beings deep down, and humans are imperfect. I was thinking about that as I ported to the coffee shop to meet Sunmi. She texted that she was scared after what had happened, and I didn't blame her. I told her I could explain everything if we could just meet. It would all make sense later on. Seeing her sit across from me with that disappointed look on her face broke me inside. I held my head over the table and slowly looked up at her. I have to go, I said. Go forever? she asked. I nodded. And before. I took a difficult breath and looked away from her. I couldn't let myself cry. Not here. Not now. It has to be now. I'm sorry, Sunmi. I held my hand up to her. Ichita. The dark brown of Sunmi's pupils filled her entire eyes. It was creepy as her face relaxed and her blank black eyes stared past me. You were spending time with your friend Gisun and you spent the rest of last week sick. You came here tonight to meet Gisun, but she had to do something else. Now you're going to go home, and you're going to keep going to school. You never met Elgar King, and you never got to know anyone, and you absolutely t didn't fall for anyone last week. Give me your phone. She blankly withdrew her smartphone and gave it to me. I was able to delete everything between us after a few minutes, then give it back to her. Wonsung Hada. It meant execute. It also gave me about a minute to leave the vicinity. I got up and left the coffee shop, pausing outside the window to look at Sunmi as she stared blankly at the empty seat opposite to her. My heart broke as she came to and looked around. Unsure of what had just happened or what was going on, I lowered my eyes to the ground. I went to Piers Tower where all the flowers had turned black. 
I sat on the edge of the tower, listening to the wind rustling through the air as I watched the sun die on the horizon far in the distance. When it finally felt as though my pain had solidified to a level that could ache no further, I decided to go home. The next afternoon, I got invited to go bowling with Mozart for his birthday. Bucky, Andrew, Minnie, and Harriet and her boyfriend showed up. Just my luck. I bowled an 83. Fantastic. I hate bowling, and I hate relationships, especially at a young age. What a waste of time. I watched my friends finish out their summer on a good note while I felt like an unpleasant bump on a log. After I bowled my last round, I walked out of the bowling place alone and sat on the bench outside. I just focused on breathing lowly and looked at the afternoon sun shining through the trees ahead. It wasn't fair. Why did everyone else get to live their best life but me? Why was it that everything I did got magnified and critiqued to the maximum degree while everyone else just got to be average? I'm average. At least, I'm supposed to be. Harriet came out after a while and sat on the bench next to me. How you doing? She asked. Uh, I said, unsure of how to answer that question. Sorry, that, she sighed, seems rather insensitive in hindsight. It's not your fault, Harriet, I said. Nobody's fault but mine. Harriet looked down. You know, I'll bet the person you eventually end up with is going to be better than you can possibly imagine. You guys will live in New Zealand or something and be happy. Yeah, maybe, I said. Come on, Elgar, lighten up a bit, she tried. I think... I licked my lips. I think I'd rather just be alone for a while. I poured it away. I poured it to the silence of an ice planet that I had discovered while questing a few months back. There's nothing quite like working on your spells through a blind, destructive rage, but sometimes that's all there is to do. I spent several hours demolishing continents of ice until I ran out of energy. I panted as I collapsed, all my power depleted as the field and valley lay in ruins. I received a message through my Midas. A famous mage caster named Lauren Strata really wanted to book me for a quick interview the following afternoon. I had nothing better to do, so I hit accept, then put on some music and continued crushing ice. Lots and lots of audio for you guys to enjoy, coming at you faster than I know how to process it. There's all kinds of great episodes coming this season as well. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this episode. Please spread the message that this podcast exists by sharing it with at least one other person. All of the story you just heard has been planned, prepared, and produced just for you. We're just getting started, so we'll see you next month. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, voiced, and produced by Benjamin Allen. Throw us a good review or tell a friend about our podcast if you enjoyed this episode. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information about this podcast and other stories as well. Thanks for listening. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2022. Good afternoon. I work for an American newspaper in New York, and I'm calling on behalf of SK Telecom. A woman spoke over the phone in her office. She had my smartphone on her desk, connected to a computer with Sunmi's picture pulled up. Yes, I just wanted to confirm that a student is in your class. Her name is Kang Sunmi? Excellent. That's all we needed to know. Thank you very much. Oh, my name? Katya Brunswick. Yes, thank you. We'll be in touch.